A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler, welcome to episode 236 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on your own Twitter and Facebook pages, at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Roman, and with me like a Wookiee with a life debt, the EU guru himself, our count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Sorry. Sorry, I had to spit. Um, hey folks, uh, finally, a lighter episode. Um, definitely not an episode that is going to be all that deep, though hopefully still entertaining and uh, insightful but yeah we've had a, <laughs> we had a couple of episodes there where people are listening and they're trying to decide whether or not to hang up the fandom entirely so perhaps right. now it's time for some some lighter fare that's right man that's uh, you know what i always say it ain't easy being cheesy but it sure is fun if you're not having fun you're working too hard and you can tell i don't work too hard just hard enough to get this show off the ground all right so uh with that Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we discuss Ron Howard's Solo, a Star Wars story. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's arrogance. You know, I gotta say, this was a film that it's hard for me to place. You know, everybody wants you to rank the Star Wars films and stuff like that, and I have yet to be able to do that with this film. Because it's a Star Wars film that I really, really enjoyed. Didn't really have much to complain about with the film at all. Uh, points of, of contention, really not very many at all. But at the same time, it also doesn't have the kind of impact and sweeping scope that we usually see in a Star Wars film. So it's kind of this interesting oddball. It really is... A Star Wars story, right? It's it's one of these little side tales, much more than Rogue One. Rogue One had an extreme impact on the galaxy at large because of the way that it led into A New Hope and everything. Whereas this really does feel like it could have been a comic. It could have been a novel. It could have been some little side story. So in that sense, it's sort of our first true anthology film in some ways. Um, that said... This was a film that I felt like it was the, the exact polar opposite of Last Jedi, right? Last Jedi was a film that took a lot of risks, went to some unexpected places, at points when you thought you knew what was going to happen or what would typically have happened in any Star Wars film with the formula up to that point. It went a different direction. Um, it rubbed people the wrong way that way. I've said before that in, in essence, 
Star Wars films, in a lot of ways, are comfort food. Because for the most part, Star Wars films don't surprise. They're usually very, very predictable. But then The Last Jedi actually managed to pull off some surprises and make it unpredictable, which led to some some consternation, I think, out there. And in that sense, Last Jedi uh, was bound to be controversial, you could say. Whereas this film, again, kind of the exact opposite. It hits all the beats you would expect. It is extremely predictable, minus a couple of small twists, one of which is kind of more of a cameo-slash-twist. Um, but a very predictable, very safe film, with the one exception, I'd say, of something we'll talk about when it comes to some of the characters, and that is the fact that, in essence, if the more recent Star Wars films have gotten flack for Disney very much pushing the idea of diverse casts, this one really was kind of the opposite, right? Primarily a white male cast or a white cast uh, or a male cast, as the case may be. Um, so certainly something that was sort of the opposite of what those who were very anti-diversity or whatever you want to call it were pushing back against. Now we see sort of an opposite. And the character of L3 became somewhat of a lightning rod that I think some people are misinterpreting. I, I kind of have, I guess, my own perspective on the L3 character. Um, but... Barring a few small things, and like the casting decisions, it seems like an extremely non-controversial film, very predictable, um, very non-risk-taking, which provides a lot of fan service and a fun adventure, but not something that's really going to be... I mean, it's not going to blow people's minds, um, but at the same time, it's also not going to really enrage, or at least it shouldn't be enraging people. So in that sense, and sort of the, the antithesis of what we got with uh, Last Jedi. But I really enjoyed it, and we'll talk about the casting and everything else as we go as far as that goes so that we can get into spoilers when we're talking about it. But um, I think it turned out better than I expected it to because I went into it with very low expectations. I didn't really expect much, and I was pleasantly surprised, and now I'm really eager to have this in 4K and in 3D when it's imported from the UK um, to watch the film at home. So uh, it managed to do what I didn't expect it to do, which was to make me a fan of this film. Even though I still would argue, maybe it really didn't need to exist. Especially if it turns out we're not going to get further solo films, because they certainly hinted at that at one point. Now there's all the talk of whether or not the Star Wars story films are being set aside and whatever, because nothing has been announced uh, specifically in that particular line. It, it really does have a bit of setup for future films that would feel awkward if there weren't to be any, so that they basically wind up being unfulfilled, potential or unfulfilled plot threads. But by and large, I dug it. See, and and I, I was going to ask that question, but since you brought it up, we'll just dump into it right now. I mean, my question was, do we need more young solo stories utilizing this new younger cast? Because when I went into this one, I really had no interest. Like, you know, so far, the new canon stories have kind of killed my love for the big three. I mean, I still always love their version of Legends, but in the canon story now, their lies take a direction that just wasn't as entertaining for me to follow. You know, I don't like the flawed Han. I don't like the fact that their marriage kind of almost completely failed, that they didn't see each other, uh, that they all split up. Like, that really didn't strike a chord with me. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to know more about this Han Solo going in. I wasn't really a fan of who they picked to play Han Solo, but I was open. You know, I'm like, honestly, I haven't seen many movies that this guy's played. Uh, and while when I watched it, I, there were very few moments where I was like, yeah, that's him. You know, that's Solo. But I did come away thinking, 
like with the X-Men movies when they shifted cast and they had the younger version of, of uh, Professor X and everything, like once you started having more movies with that new cast, then it really set the tone that, yes, this is them at that age. And I think in that regard, I think we kind of do need to utilize these characters, you know, uh, Donald Glover as Lando, Aaron Alderite as, uh, as Han. I would love to see more stories with them being utilized to help build up the sense that this is Han Solo. You know, even though it's not the Han we see in episode four, this is that character. And, and granted, you know, you can get that same thing with just this one movie. But I think that it will definitely help the people that were like me on the fence to solidify that feeling that, yes, this is Han Solo if we get more of that. And I think, you know, if you think about the overall genre of what we got with legend stories for both Lando and Han in this age, you know, there's a lot of potential here that they could still do. I mean... There's what five year gap or so still after this movie ends that that before we get to a new hope. So we could do like a whole hut syndicate story, find out how Han gets deep in the hut, how he gets deep in debt, that kind of stuff. Like I, I to me, I think it's one of those things that they definitely should do it. Um, what do you sit on that? Like, do you, do you think we're good with this and we can move on? Well, we've actually got a bigger time gap than you're thinking at this point. Um, there is a ten year time gap between this and a new hope. Um, this film starts 13 years before A New Hope, actually the same time that the uh, the prologue part of Rogue One is happening, and then jumps to 10 years before A New Hope. So we've got a nice big chunk of time, even before Rebels comes around, um, where they could be telling these stories. I think that, in essence, do we need more stories that are sort of origin stories for Han and Lando? Not necessarily. But now that they have set up certain things in this film that are sort of dangling threads, those threads need to be picked up at some point. And I think that you would have to assume that in order to really satisfactory wrap all of them up, you would need some type of follow-up to this, even if it's not a Han Solo film per se. If it just uses many of the same characters, there needs to now be something that picks up with these characters and runs with it. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a film. It could be a novel. It could be a comic. What we don't want is a situation where it's basically left hanging. Um, which is something we saw every so often in the Legends continuity, where you would have something be left hanging. Or... Death Troopers! <laughs> that. Or take something, for instance, like um, like the difference between Legends and canon in the way that they dealt with Clone Wars, right? So Clone Wars for Legends is basically the Clone Wars cartoon series, all six seasons of it, plus the film. Plus there's these tie-in comics, and there's these tie-in books and everything. And then you got... Uh, the unproduced scripts being used to make Son of Dathomir, and you get the little, you know, the story reels and stuff. But then after that point, uh, it all kind of shifts over to canon, right? And in canon, that's where any new publications came in. So you had in canon, you sort of copied and pasted the cartoon series and the movie and Son of Dathomir from Legends, where it still exists, into canon. But then canon kept building. So in essence, canon tells us what happens to Rex uh, with Rebels and the Ahsoka novel, for instance. What happens to Ahsoka and so on. Uh, what happens to Maul post-Son of Dathomir, we now know, thanks to the Ahsoka novel and Rebels and so on. All kinds of, of sort of dangling threads that we got answers to, but answers that are an adventurous, right? The fate of Ventress, Dark Disciple. Answers that are purely canonical, that do not reflect over into Legends at all, because by the time they were produced, that line was split. I even asked them when Dark Disciple was released, hey, this is based on unproduced scripts like Son of Dathomir was. Does it exist in both like Son of Dathomir does? The answer, no. 
So in essence, what we have is answers in one continuity, no answers in the other. And that will always be kind of a frustrating thing, I think, for fans of the Legends continuity that we don't have the answers of what came next. Like, what happens with Ahsoka as of the time of Order 66? What happens to Rex and that sort of thing? So in this case, there are questions that you would still be asking after the end of this film if there's not some way that these story threads are wrapped up, uh, if they're not just left dangling. But as far as we know, I mean, maybe we'll get some answers through flashbacks or even current events uh, when Resistance, the new cartoon series, premieres this fall. Um, I believe it is this fall that they're saying that it's supposed to premiere. Uh, that, the that Star Wars Insider... Yeah, yeah, Star Wars Insider had images of a couple of cast members and was talking about the cast members and what to expect. And it's kind of a, you guys are already that far? Why haven't we heard anything more, right? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that it needs to be wrapped up somehow. But does it have to necessarily be more films with these particular characters? I do agree with you that, to some degree, it would probably make people more accepting of the characters. Um, in the same way, and we'll use this, I, I guess we can start the spoiler section talking about chronology and then casting. Um but from a casting standpoint, I think that in a lot of ways, if there are more solo films focusing on this particular cast, it will be kind of like Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Beyond have made people more accepting of, say, Simon Pegg as Scotty, Chris Pine as Kirk, and so on and so on, which we'll get into because that's my primary touch points when it comes to talking about casting existing characters. And and that's a great – see, I was going to use Spartacus as my example because, you know, you watch season one and then that actor passed away from cancer and they had to pick another actor. And when they shifted, like I – it took me almost all of season two to see him as Spartacus. Then by the end of season three and stuff, then I went back to the first one. And I was like, man, that was really hard to shift from one to the other because I got so used to the other one. But I remember when that shift happened, I kind of was grudgingly like, all right, I guess we'll we'll give this a whirl. But see, for me, like – it's the Kara character that I want to know more about because like when she gives Han the dice back and then there's the whole dice, you know, with Luke giving him delay and stuff. I'm like, wait, those, that's, that's the Kira. Re- I want to have some closure there. Like, I feel like those dice, like Han having those dice feels kind of like he's like cheating on Leia right now to me. Like I, there's something about that, that just feels shady. Like we need to have some complete closure there, <laughs> but I still haven't taken anybody but my son to go see this movie. Um, now granted part of that is Disney's little restrictions that they put on my work. So I can go and watch it as many times as I want, but I had to wait till the 18th of June before I could take anyone else to go and see it. And since then there have been movies that my wife would rather see. So we've watched tag, we've watched oceans eight. There's, you know, all these other movies that she's really wanting to watch and then we'll get to solo. Uh, and the same thing with my mom, like my mom wants to watch this, but she still hasn't even seen Avengers four. So, you know, there, there's that aspect of it too, which I guess goes into a lot of the aspect of people considering this movie a failure, you know, and I, I don't see it as a failure because I think the problem here is that there was just so many people in our boat of like, not really sure that they felt like we needed to have this. You hear people talk about, well, there's potentially a Boba Fett movie. And one of the big things is I don't want it. You hear a lot of people like, I don't need it. Uh, you know, and I think that that's kind of where I was at with this, with the Han Solo one was like, I don't necessarily know if I need to have this, but yet I think I kind of had that same feeling with Rogue One, you know, going in and yet Rogue One impressed the heck out of me. I, I dare say that so far the a Star Wars story movies, they definitely exceed my expectations going in compared to the saga films. Like the saga films have been good, but they're blowing me away in a different direction. Um, so for me, it was like, it was a good story. I'm, I'm with you in the aspect of I'm having a hard time placing it because like I've only seen it three times so far 
and it's good, but I just, I, I, I keep coming to back. It was good. It's, it wasn't great, you know, and I don't know how you would tell a flashback story and make it great without making some big event or something like that happening. And like with this one, the big event felt like it was all about the Kessel run, you know, because we knew that that was going to happen. And the other side of the event was the evolution of the Falcon to what we see and know later. Um, so it's like without those two things, like this story could be something like you said that, that was in a book or a comic. Like this could have totally fit in that medium as well. So I, I like the idea that we're getting stories that you could tell in a book or comic, making it as film, considering the fact that we're going to have these all going forward. But, you have all the different snowball aspects of what happened in the behind the scenes with this movie that you have to contemplate and put into perspective. You know, you've got the directors getting fired. You got the marketing seemed to be lighter on this one. You had no force Friday or Wookiee Wednesday or whatever like that. There was no big marketing aspect. Uh, you know, my local stores, there was nothing solo, nothing hit the store shelves. Uh, we never got the hot wheels things. I was looking for these things, never came in the six inch black series figures, nothing restocked. Like, Rogue One was the last we got. Like, they barely even restocked any of the Last Jedi stuff. And I don't even know who to blame for that kind of fatigue. Because I don't think that that's something on Lucasfilm. I'm pretty sure they're putting those toys out and they're getting to the rest of the nation. I don't know why some of the local stores are choosing to, you know, they're like, we're done. Like, and it seems really like you talk about marketing fatigue and all this stuff. And it just seems like it's the, the company that's buying the toys that are choosing not to stock it. Which then in turn hurts the people that, you know, a lot of people didn't know this movie even it came out. Now, granted, if you're watching cable TV, you're getting all those trailers and stuff. But if you're not on cable TV, where was the marketing at? And I think that that was a big issue that you had. Plus, you had the fact that that look what it was competing against. You know, you had Avengers. Granted, they moved Avengers up because they realized, hey, we're going to have Deadpool coming out in May. We're going to have the Star Wars movie coming out in May. Maybe we should move our movie up a couple weeks and get a, you know, a couple extra weeks worth of, you know, pure profit, right? Well, that worked great for them. But when Solo came around, it's like, you still had the people that hadn't gone and seen Avengers. They still hadn't gone and seen Deadpool. And they're just now catching up on that. So that kind of also hurt them. I was talking to one of my coworkers and he's a Star Wars fan, but he has no intention of watching solo in theaters but he does plan on buying it when it comes out on dvd so i'm curious as when the dvd comes out how many of those type of fans that refuse to watch it in theater but are planning on buying it how much that's going to boost the numbers up and stuff plus you have all the debacle with the directors the changing the reshoots and all that additional money so you have people looking at this like it was a failure and yet i feel like it's like the perfect storm of many failures that made it look like a bigger failure because when you go in and watch the film, it was very entertaining. It did have the feel of Star Wars. Um, I mean, for me, I think that the two standout characters were Lando and Chewie. Like I, those two characters felt spot on in so many ways. I really enjoyed Beckett and his crew. Uh, and, and Han Solo, just the, this new fresh take on Han was great. Like he was cocky in such a different way. Like he was cocky in the push the boundaries kind of way. And so when you see him run into Luke later, I have an appreciation for that now more because it's like, whereas before Han was kind of dismissive of Luke. Now I look at Han as more like seeing a reflection into himself. And I really appreciate that outlook on it. So I think that was cool. For me, my evolution of looking at Han and Canon has definitely changed a lot in the last six years. Uh, <laughs> because Han and Canon was my favorite character. 
And that's not the same anymore, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because I'm, I'm reevaluating where I look at these characters because everything I thought I knew is now shifted. And so I think for me, like, and a lot of other fans out there that were huge legend fans, that's a hard thing because there are aspects of the legend stories that for some of us felt better. And then there were some that were worse, but it's when they don't line up and you're like, you want to have something that is going to feel like it's replacing something in a good way. You don't want to replace it with something bad. And I'm not saying this was bad, but for some people out there, I could see how there were elements of it that let them down. Now, for me, I thought this one was a knockout of the park. I wouldn't say it was the greatest film I've ever seen, but I'm having a really hard time like you putting it in perspective compared to the other films. Uh, you know, it, it's, that's where I'm having a hard time. And I think for me, a big chunk of that is that I haven't seen this movie with the majority of the people that I love, you know, I mean, for me, that, that helps me kind of get a sense of, you know, where they sit, uh, because, you know, I'm the dyed in the wool fan. Like, you know, I'm going to go and watch it, whether it's good or bad, I'm going to be sitting there to check it out because this is my jam. And I want to see this stuff, whether, you know, it goes around, I, I like or not, but that was the same with legends. Like I didn't enjoy Jason solo becoming Darth Cadus. Granted for you, that was, that was where you really enjoyed it. For me, that was, that was a shift. I took it and I ran with it. It was still a great story, but it wasn't what I was hoping for that character. I was hoping he was going to become something more, you know, he was going to become like something beyond a Jedi, something beyond a Sith. He was going to create a new order kind of thing. And yet we didn't go that direction. But I think that's part of being the fan is tempering your expectations going in. Uh, do you think that a lot of people had high expectations or do you think most of them were kind of in our camp of, we'll you know, we'll see where this goes and we'll just kind of roll with the punches? I'll put it this way. Um, there were precisely zero people, I think, that I spoke with about the film prior to it. And we're talking like not just prior to the film, but prior to even the trailers, right, where we actually get to see glimpses of it. But even some after that. Uh, zero people who were like, yeah, Han Solo film, woohoo, right? Most were in that camp of, do we really need this movie? Did we ask for this movie? Why are we getting this movie instead of a movie about, say, you know, uh, young Obi-Wan that has Ewan McGregor or whatever? Like, uh, there were so many other things that we would have liked to see that when this was announced, it was kind of like, really? This? Though, again, as you said, you know, I had the same response to Rogue One. Yeah, we're going to get a canonical version of the of getting the Death Star plans, but for the love of God, we've seen this story like a thousand times already. And most of the time, it was contradictory in the process, right? Um, whereas, just like with Rogue One, though, it was one that once you actually see it, I think that, you know, that draws you in and you get really excited about the characters and the situations and it becomes a fun Star Wars ride. Um but I think it's helped by the fact that people had those low expectations. Um, same thing with Row One. Just if you walk in with lower expectations, then, uh, you know, either your low expectations get confirmed or it turns out to be good. And neither of those is as disappointing as going into something with high expectations and having it turn out to be something you don't like, as we saw with a lot of people with Last Jedi. Um, but I think part of this, though, also, it's not just the do we need this story it's the idea of stakes, right? Like I, we said that, you know, this is a story that could have been done in a comic or a novel. I would double down on that and say that this might not be a story that you would have seen in a Legends comic or novel because those actually had galactic implications sometimes. Big crap actually happened in novels and comics in the Legends days. This movie would very much fit in, though, with modern Star Wars novels, where most of the modern Star Wars novels Nothing really earth-shattering is going to happen. 
There are character studies with things that happen with those characters, but the galactic implications are generally nil or close to it. Um, the impact just isn't there from a galactic scale for most of the new Star Wars novels. And in essence, this is the first Star Wars movie to have that level of small-scale implications. Rogue One was a Star Wars story, but Rogue One had those galactic implications. This one did not. This was a much more personal, individual story that, if you didn't have it, really changes nothing out there, as opposed to, you know, uh, if you remove certain novels from Legends, you remove certain movies from, or even episodes of cartoon series from canon, and you have a glaring hole in the continuity. Not so much in this case. Um, but part of that also, it's not just that they did a story that in and of itself was small stakes. It suffers from the same thing, or just, I guess suffers is the right word, that Clone Wars did. Right? Clone Wars. Oh no! Anakin! And Obi-Wan! And Dooku! And Grievous! And Yoda! And Mace Windu! Are in peril! Eek! Yeah, I don't care because we know that they're still around for episode three. So give us some peril for characters we give a crap about, but whose fates also aren't known. Can you give us something that has those combined? Um, in essence, that's kind of what we got here, where we don't know the fates of Beckett's crew. Um, we don't know the fates of other people that they run into, like Kira or Dryden Voss and so forth, like these new characters. But our primary core group includes three characters right, which are Han, Lando, and Chewie, who are the ones we're supposed to care the most about because they are the characters we know and whose fates are, of course, known to us, you know, going off into the far future. So, in essence, it gave the sense going into this film that, well, this is this film where nothing can happen, at least nothing that matters can happen, as opposed to something like, yeah, and to some degree, there were some things with the prequels where you were like, yeah, well, we know how certain things are going to end up. But contrast that with something like, you know, The Force Awakens and Last Jedi, because they're in a future era that hasn't been charted yet, and they're moving forward in that era. You don't have the instance of some predetermined outcome shaping the events of a particular film as that film is being released. Um, so... They gave us sort of a story here that, like, again, it, it really could be a modern Star Wars novel um, in almost every respect, except, I guess, for the budget. Um, and in doing so, it made for a fun film, but I think that's what makes it hard to pin down. That's what makes it hard for people to get excited to go see it. Like, oh my god, I haven't seen Solo yet! I've got to go see Solo! Uh, I do think you're right that you're going to see more people getting this on home video, because a lot of people would have skipped it. Um... I, and not necessarily with the whole boycott thing. We're not going to get into the politics of it, hopefully, as much this time. So much as just the, you know, the, there's so many other things to see. There's so many other things I could do with my weekend. And it's not Christmas break or anything for anybody. Um, some schools are still in session at that point. Um, so so the younger audience, you know, maybe, maybe not going to go. Plus, you got, like I said, Avengers and Deadpool and all this other stuff. And it's just kind of one of those, I'll see it when I see it type of films in a lot of ways. Um, we were not super excited when we went to see, like, the excitement factor usually builds for us as we go see it, and we're, I'm usually kind of anxious, and we're kind of like, woohoo, as we're driving to the theater. None of that. None of that at all. Um, my first moment of being like, okay, this could be good, was seeing the Solo logo show up over the street, and I'm like, at least they got rid of that stupid-ass way they dealt with it for Rogue One, right? So it, it definitely is one that has, it's almost you have to see it 
in, in some ways, I guess it's kind of like what I say with, with virtual reality or with, um, with 3D film, um, to some degree, at least 3D film at home, which is sort of a, you need to see it to buy into it. Um, because just hearing about it and seeing the advertising for it isn't necessarily going to give you the impression that this is going to be as fun an experience as it turns out to be. Um, but again, I'll get into a little bit more specifics. I know you mentioned the casting stuff quite a bit. That's a big part for me, but I think I have to have spoilers enacted to be able to do that. So, uh, so I'm good on non-spoiler stuff if you are. So the last thing I was just going to say is, you know, with the crawl aspect, like they did something different. There was no crawl. Um, do you feel like they've made a mistake in getting rid of the crawl? I mean, for me, I know I talked about it when they got rid of it the first time, but the more I'm watching these solo films, solo films, these Star Wars story films that aren't part of the saga, I feel like that's, that's something that they should put back. Like to me, that was part of the integral aspect of watching a Star Wars movie was having that moment. Now, granted, they, they kind of like, played with it you know they did the long time ago and then they gave us a couple little more things in the blue like writing but without that crawl to me that just it feels fundamentally off when i watch these movies and they don't have that like i I don't know for me that feels like that's part of the formula of star wars that is missing like i love the fact that the comics would do that occasionally you get books that would do it and it just, it feels odd when I start a Star Wars movie and it doesn't have that. Now, Rogue One did really cool with the music and you're like, oh my gosh, we're like jumping right in. But I don't think I want to continue with this trend of no opening crawl. Like that to me and, and calling them all a Star Wars story to me, I think that those were mistakes and going forward, I think that they should move away from those. I, I think they should put the crawl back and ditch the whole a Star Wars story. I think just putting Star Wars around it is is good enough. Because think about this. When the novelization comes out, it's going to be Star Wars, Han Solo, a Star Wars story. <laughs> it just seems so ridiculous to me. I don't know. I mean, I think this was a good middle ground of how to do it, right? With Rogue One, it was just jump straight in and no setup at all. And then with Star Wars prior to that, we did have the Clone Wars giving us those little fortune cookies and the, you know, a galaxy torn by war kind of openings. So giving us something that sets it up felt very Star Wars, but still doing it in a way that was different than a crawl, even though it basically was what amounted to a crawl. Um, doing it that way, I think, worked. And I think part of that, for me, is the way that it transitions, right? Because generally with an opening crawl, the crawl goes out into space, we're still in space, and then our perspective shifts, and here's a ship, right? And with Rogue One, it was still, here's a ship, basically, very quickly, and yet we're not really going to give you a crawl. With this, what's the first shot? It, after those words go off the screen, the shot is the sparks of him trying to hotwire the speeder that he's stealing. We're not in space. We're not getting the typical uh, slight camera movement and here's a ship kind of thing, um, which is a very different feel. And then the logo itself showing up over the streets, which is a cool 3D effect, by the way, if you see it in 3D, um, that worked well, I think. So I think in that sense, um, it made for a nice, smooth transition to something different. This still felt familiar enough and gave us the information we needed to really go. Although, how much did we actually need to know? You know, it's a lawless time and there's gangs and stuff. Yeah, yeah, got it. Got it. We could have gotten that from the film. If anything, this film, more than Rogue One, should have been able to go without a crawl if they really needed to. Um, 
Now, speaking of which, by the way, I would I would note here as a as kind of a side comment with the seventy one billion dollar offer made by Disney or Walt Disney Company uh, for the Fox Entertainment assets recently uh, being agreed to being approved by American regulators as long as they divest themselves of the different regional sports networks because Disney already owns ESPN and that would be a, a too close to a monopoly. Um, or a price leader situation, as you call it, uh, monopolistic competition economic, e- economics, people would call it, um, which sounds like an oxymoron, but really is a thing. Um, with that happening, we can expect more than likely that any future releases of the Lucas Star Wars films to come out uh, will have those truncated kind of crawls like we saw on the digital release rather than the traditional opening fanfares because 20th Century Fox will no longer be a part of it, right? So those theoretically won't exist on the opening. So um, it's a shifting time of Star Wars openings, but I think the Solo one worked better than any of the other ones that we've seen that are non-traditional, non-crawl openings, at least for me. And, and honestly, I, I'm just now even noticing things on the original trilogy. too. like now that I'm watching on Blu-ray, when the Star Wars logo goes up, the inside of the word Star Wars is a darker black than the space around it. I'm like, when? Wow, has that always been like that? Like, I never realized that until the other day. I like, literally, like last week, I'm like, wow, like all these years I've been watching that and I never noticed that the blacks have always matched on my TV. See, and that's why oh. that's the same kind of thing. Except for me, it's the audio stuff. I watch, uh, mm-hmm. I watch the new Star Wars films, uh, episode seven and eight, and when they do it, and the, and I'm hearing the music, I'm like. What is that tinkling? What is that tinkling? Was that tinkling always there? Why is it tinkling so damn much? <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's just me. Uh, maybe it's time to go to spoilers when we're talking about tinkling. I think so. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure, Beyond the Films. Okay, so now we can talk some chronology and some casting, I think, uh, and the characters and so on. I've got a few things I want to make sure we talk about, but I'm trying to do this a little more freeform because I went into so much detail uh, on my non-spoiler <laughs> and spoiler vlogs. And then, uh, of course, Michael and I had to argue about the film and argue about most everything about it, because that seems to be what happens when it comes to anything Han and Lando related. Um... But chronology-wise, I thought it was interesting here that we actually have an interesting chronology for this film that changes something in canon and makes it different than Legends in a way that's Does kind Lando of Lando and Han's age? Yes, the ages are oh. now different. So this mm. film starts in 13 BBY, right? Six years after Revenge of the Sith, same year as the opening of Rogue One, but it's 13 BBY. And then it jumps three years to 10 BBY, which is when the rest of it takes place. And it tells us right there in the film, right, that it's three years later when the time jump happens. It tells us basically that it's 10 years before A New Hope because Chewie is 190 years old, stated explicitly, and he's 200 in A New Hope. Uh, and, you know, they've kind of pinned this down in other guides, but if you look at the solo official guide by Dorling Kindersley, the it's Pablo Hidalgo wrote it, but Dorling Kindersley is a publisher, the same one that does, like, the visual guides for everything else. But... It dates all the dates based on the Kessel Run, which, of course, happens in the film. So it's dating backwards from the film. The dates are given as BKR, before Kessel Run. And it (laughs) gives the date 
of before Kessel Run for Han's birth. First off, it's, it's, it makes it clear that Han doesn't know how old he actually is. It's all sort of, sort of a, an estimation anyway. But that Han actually was born 22 years before the Kessel Run, meaning that Han was born in the same year as the Phantom Menace now. Okay? That was not the case before. In Legends, he was said to be 29 in A New Hope, which would have made him born in 29 BBY, three years after the Battle of Naboo. Now, that starts to make a difference because Lando in Legends was said to be two years older than Han, being born in 31 BBY. Well, okay, if Han's now born in 32, is Lando still older, or is Lando a year younger than Han now? And what implication does that have whenever Han is trying to butt into the conversation between Kira and Lando where he says the grown-ups are talking, right? And how does this fit with the age, of course, of Kira? Uh, how does that fit? So, turns out, we've got some clarification on this now. Han is 19 when we meet him in 13 BBY. He's 22 in the rest of the film. Kira starts out as 18. She is 21 throughout the rest of the film. And apparently their birth dates within the year, their birth months, are at different points of the year because in Most Wanted, the story that leads up sort of into the film to some degree, um, they're both 18-ish, they say. And yes, they use the dash-ish on their their <laughs> ages within the Most Wanted book. Um, so apparently it's kind of like a Jyn Erso thing, right? Where Kira hasn't had her birthday yet this year and Han has. But they were able to clarify, Matt Martin of the story group clarified that, yes, Lando is still assumed to be older than Han, but they haven't pinned down by how much or when his birth date is. So, all of a sudden, this movie's placement causes us in canon to have a different age for Han and a different age for Lando when we see them in the other films relative to where we saw them before. On top of this, as kind of a side note, we have... Uh, Daniel, Daniel Jose Oder, I think is how you say it, um, who wrote Last Shot. And Last Shot has segments with Lando and L3 as about 15 years ago. Well, if you do the math of about 15 years ago, as compared to when the, when the present of that book takes place, Lando's running around with L3 after she's been destroyed already. So either she's rebuilt or, the fact that those segments all say around or about 15 years ago have to be taken as, of course, that's an extreme estimation. And again, we've gotten some clarification that, yes, that's why they say about or around, because they hadn't, I guess, pinned down the time of the film yet, which allowed him to play with it and still have some wiggle room in case the exact 15 years didn't wind up lining up with the film. Blanket statements. Yeah, new kind of odd chronological stuff happening with this, which, you know, I don't think it's a huge deal, but it's just kind of interesting that they're shifting it. It reminds me of, you know, for years, we were given a birth date and an age for Luke and Leia, for Obi-Wan, for Vader slash Anakin. And then the prequels came around and the birth date year, the birth years and birth dates and ages relative to each film for all those characters got changed. Every single one of them. Um, thanks to the prequel films coming around. So it's kind of a an echo of that to some degree. Um, I did want to get into casting, but what do you think about the chronological tweaks? That's, that's what I was going to ask you, because isn't it kind of dangerous? You know, you said they were using the, the before Kessel Run as their dating. To me, that seems more dangerous to reference events versus the standard calendar. Like, 
if you use the standard calendar and you say like we're going to put zero at the Battle of Yavin, right? Like, and everything's going to be ABY or BBY. And if you go with that, it feels more solid. When you're just referencing events, what happens if that event shifts? You know, I mean, now everything that you've referenced to that is now shifted, and and that's when you get into those continuity errors that could have been avoided very easily had we just went with something locked in place. And that's the aspect where I have to say I am really disappointed in, and I don't even know if I'm to say the story group anymore because I really don't feel like the story group's doing what I ever thought the story group should have been doing. Uh, but that to me is one of the things that they really need to get better at that going forward. If they really want us to continue to buy in as this universe continues to grow, you know, I mean, we're eventually going to get that point where it's like, well, you can't go to the refresher now because, you know, as we had in legends, when you were in the, uh, a new hope through empire strikes back. There was just so much stuff happening that, you know, you, you had those characters, the big three and everything. Now you're going to run that same risk if you don't start locking these dates in. Uh, you know, that's, that's where I get worried is that kind of overlap of like, if somebody's really paying attention, they're going to catch these things. And why aren't we having the people paying attention pointing this out in, you know, the beginning stages? Like, Hey guys, if we're using this reference system and this event changes, then everything we've done is now no longer locked in. It has no foundation. We're actually floating on the water out here. We're not on an island. Like to me, that seems completely crazy and a, a, a recipe for disaster. And I know I'm, I'm beating the, the dead horse war drum here, but it's just, to me, it's, it's common sense. You don't set something up in, you know, you don't set your tent up next to a dry riverbed when there's a storm coming. And to me, that's what we're doing. I mean, that's the thing, right? I'm, you know, I teach history, among other things, and that's what you run into with relative date dating. You know, if something is said to be, you know, five years after this event happens, and then it turns out that your anchor date, as they call it, the one you're dating from, is wrong, then the other date changes, because relative date dating is all about you have an anchor date and a specific amount of time before or after when something else takes place that doesn't have a pin-down date, and you do the math to pin down that other date. Um, it's funny you mentioned that that's, that's coming up now. Um, I've mentioned before how I like having, you know, the engaging conversations, the intellectual conversations, even if I'm not necessarily, um, um, of the same mindset as the people that I'm talking to. And I've talked about how, you know, there's the couple of Jehovah's Witness guys, one in particular who show up here, you know, about once a week or, or, or every so often. And we have these intellectual conversations about things, you know, about uh, theological things. And it's funny because one of the most recent things we talked about was that basically there was a time when there was sort of a leaning towards the idea that the fall of Jerusalem was in 607-606 BC or so, and there wasn't really a counter-argument, a big counter-argument to that. So the Jehovah's Witness belief is that it, you have uh, 2,520 years, comes from a prophetic thing, that passes between the fall of Jerusalem and when essentially Jesus takes up rule in heaven before eventually on earth. There's a lot of controversy because at one point they believed they would happen at the same time anyway. Um, suffice to say... It's this idea that, well, it's, it's 1914 because it dates back from the fall of Jerusalem in 606 or 607 BC. As if now historians are pretty much in almost unanimous agreement, no, it's actually 587 BC. And yet, instead of, and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, to their credit, have changed theological beliefs repeatedly over the last couple hundred years. A lot of times things like, you know, uh, the war that's going to wipe away all human uh, governments that's going to establish Jesus's kingdom on earth is going to be in 
1914. Oh, it doesn't happen in 1914? We meant 1915. No, we meant it's going to happen within the lifetime of those who were at least 15 years old in 1914. No, actually, what we mean is anybody who was born as of 1914. Oh, never mind, the 1914 thing is gone. It's just happening at some undetermined point in the future. But most of the time when they change those perspectives, since we're already in the age of reason, in essence, they actually take the time to explain why the perspective is changing to the believers. You know, well, this was our interpretation. Now we think based on new evidence, this will be the interpretation or whatever. So a very intellectually honest group in terms of when changes happen, but this one particular change, the 606-607 versus 587 thing and how that would change the date of 1914 because it's a relative date. It's an anchor date and a time span that gives you 1914. That it's such an ingrained part that certain things happened in 1914 in the Jehovah's Witness faith that instead of saying, oh, well, the, this, the same thing still happened. It's just that we were wrong about the date. Let's scoot the date and start using one that actually matches what historians now believe. There's all this sort of backflipping going on to come up with ways to try to mathematically shoehorn it so that 1914 can still be based on a date that historians flat out disagree with when it comes to the fall of Jerusalem. Um, that's the thing. That's the danger of relative dates that you run into as historians, as Star Wars fans, as anyone. That if you are going to be intellectually honest about relative dates, you have to keep in mind that if you change your anchor or you change your time frame, the relative date by definition changes because it only existed at that point because of the calculations you made based on those other two things that you thought were static that have now turned out to change. And now the calculation must be redone to change it. I can't say something happened when I was, you know, five years old and have someone say, oh, so it happened in 1986. Well, no, I wasn't born in 1981. I was born in 1979. Oh, so you mean it happened when you were five years old in 1984? Yes. See, it's that easy. But there's a tendency to sort of lock ourselves into the, rel the dates that we calculated as having to be true because we believe they've been true for so long, which I think is probably the case with the Jehovah's Witness thing. Unless there's something I'm missing, we're going to have a conversation about it the next time he and I have a chance to talk. Uh, he's going to bring some of their calculations. But I just I find it interesting that in a lot of ways, Star Wars as a fictional saga has some of the same pitfalls and runs over the same speed bumps that real life historians do when it comes to looking at history. Just because it's fictional history doesn't mean... It doesn't run into many of the same issues, which, you know, I guess I would know from the years on the timeline. Um, I guess I'm sort of getting off topic here. The, another thing I wanted to talk about that you brought up was the casting. And I think that to me, when you're going to take an existing character and recast them, particularly recasting in a younger version of themselves, in essence, the new Star Trek films give us a perfect nomenclature to be able to look at this and a great shorthand for it. Because to me, there's three different things you could do. You can take the Zachary Quinto as Spock approach, right? Which is that, holy crap, this guy is so dead on in his performance and his look that not only can you believe this guy is a younger version of the character, but this guy could be a younger version of the other actor playing the character. It's such a perfect fit, and it's an emulation of the original character in almost every respect. Quinto blows the roof off the place, in his ability to recapture the Leonard Nimoy Spock. The opposite end of the extreme is Chris Pine as Kirk, 
who has little to nothing at all in common with the original William Shatner Kirk in terms of the performance. He doesn't look like him. He doesn't really act like him. He doesn't talk like him. In essence, it's, okay, Chris Pine, you're going to play Kirk in these movies, but play him your way. Make the character your own. And to some degree, you eventually are able maybe to buy them as a younger version of the character, but you will never buy them as a younger version of the actor portraying the original character, right? I'll buy Chris Pine as Kirk. I will never buy Chris Pine as Shatner's Kirk, whereas I can buy Quinto as Leonard Nimoy's Spock. But see, I, I could, I could see Chris Pine just as the the original series version of Kirk, like when he was first introduced. But as the series progressed, I'm, I'm with you on that. He stopped feeling that way, and it was only mainly because that 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 young Kirk in the original series had that pretty boy thing going for him. And I do feel like Chris Pine's got that aspect, but that's about it. It's very loose. <laughs> well, I said that there's a middle ground though. Okay, and the middle ground is is Carl Urban as McCoy. Yeah. Because Carl yeah. Urban, you look at Carl Urban, you even look at him when he is in costume as McCoy, and somebody tells you without you ever seeing the film, hey, that's McCoy. You're like, are you kidding me? That is not Leonard H. Bones McCoy. That is not even remotely DeForest Kelly McCoy. What the hell did they do when they cast this character? And then you see the movie and he opens his mouth. And oh, his God. mannerisms, yeah. his way of speaking, mm-hmm. the performance carries it yes. so well. All she left me was my bones. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, the transformation of the perception from visual to the dynamic of visual with the, 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 the audio. And he sort of becomes this great middle ground of how you make a character who's not necessarily going to be easily believable as a younger version of the actor from the previous portrayal but who is dead on going to fit when it comes to the uh, the the character himself. And I, I guess, to me, when it comes to recasting a previously existing character, I would think that Quinto is kind of the thing you would try to aim for if you're trying not to anger old fans, if you're trying to really make for a seamless continuity. What they did with Solo at first, I was concerned, was a straight-up nothing-but-Chris-Pine approach. Instead, now I would probably say, having seen the film a couple of times, that it's somewhere in between that Chris Pine approach and the Carl Urban approach. Um, I think with Alden Ehrenreich playing Han, he's much more of the Chris Pine approach. Because by no means, at no point in this film, do I ever see Alden Ehrenreich as Han and think, hey... That's a younger version of the Harrison Ford Han Solo. I could see him growing up to be the Han Solo that we knew as Harrison Ford in his younger days, or even his older days when we see him in The Force Awakens. Never. Never happens. Same thing with Lando. I never look at Donald Glover and think, hey, that's a young Billy D. Williams right there. He can grow up to be Billy D. Hell no. Though in his case, it's because I think he doesn't have nearly the swagger and the smoothness that Billy D. brought to the role. Um, but with both of those two, I cannot see them being the older or being the younger version of the actor's portrayal of the existing characters. But it only took a matter of probably a few lines of dialogue for me to be able to buy both of them as younger versions of the characters, albeit portrayed by different people. So in essence, I was concerned that it was only going to be a pine approach. I still think that Aaron Reich is a little closer to that side and Glover's a little bit closer to the urban side. But I think that, and I mean Carl Urban, um, 
uh, before anybody goes, oh, you said Urban for a black man. No, idiot. I mean, Carl Urban. Um, but no, you take those two. And I think that, that after seeing it multiple times, they're a little bit closer to, to the Carl Urban point on that spectrum than to the Pine point, uh, at least in some respects. Because again, like I said, it, it, it took me no time at all. To buy Ehrenreich, who I never thought I'd be able to buy as a young Han Solo, let alone a young Harrison Ford Han Solo. It took no time at all for me to buy him as a young Han. And the same thing for Glover as a young Lando Calrissian. Although we didn't have as much time spent with Lando as Han, so maybe that made it an easier thing uh, to buy into. So it, it was it was an interesting choice. Casting was my biggest concern going into it. Now, Woody Harrelson as as Beckett works well. But, you know, it's, you don't really know anything else about Beckett. It's kind of Woody Harrelson playing kind of a Woody Harrelson character, right? Except sober, right? Um, and then you've got the other, I guess, major character, because I, I, I want to save L3 for later, which is Kira, right? I mean, Paul Bettany as, as Dryden Voss is okay. He's, he's, he's subtly menacing. He's a different kind of villain. Okay, whatever. Um, I was concerned about Amelia Clark as Kira because... It was like, oh my god, she's from Game of Thrones! I'm like, yeah, but you've seen Game of Thrones, right? In a lot of ways with Game of Thrones, what makes Daenerys Targaryen an interesting character is some of the stuff that happens to her, and some of the stuff she's able to do, but it's never really the performance of Amelia Clark that makes you go, wow, Daenerys Targaryen rocks. No, This is no Sean Bean kind of thing. This is This is a performance that, to me has never really made me say, wow, she's a great actress. It was, wow, that character is fairly well-written in some respects. So I was worried going into this, would she be able to capture the Kira character and give her some dynamic that makes it memorable? And I think that her interactions with Han work well, and she's good at sort of being the subtly, you know, I know things are not going to work, but I'm trying to pretend that it's not sometimes. That comes across well. But once again, as with everything I've ever seen her in, it wasn't like, Whoa! She was great! She was great! Um, so for me, like, my thoughts on the cast in general tend to be good, or at least serviceable, um, for the recapturing of the previous existing characters, a little more close to Urban than Pine. Okay. Um, but then, but then I would say that, I guess to me, it's just, it's one of these things where no, no one's, you know, I'm not sitting back going, whoa, that performance really for anybody. And I, I'm blown away by the people out there who are just fawning over Amelia Clark in this film and about, oh my God, Donald Glover is the perfect Lando Calrissian. He captured it exactly. Oh my God, this is the best acting ever. What movie did you watch? <laughs> well, interestingly for me, when it comes to Amelia Clark's performance, my wife didn't watch Game of Thrones. She was reluctant, didn't want to watch it, gory, graphic, all that. And we watched Me Before You. And I was blown away in that movie by how expressive her eyebrows were, right? And my and my wife absolutely fell in love with her in that movie and then interviews that she's done and stuff. And she's always had expressive eyebrows. And what got my wife into watching Game of Thrones was I was talking about her performance as Khaleesi. I said, now you watch her in these movies and, and she goes through an array of emotions all in her eyes and her eyebrows. They're just so expressive. And then you get to Game of Thrones and Khaleesi and she manages to never have those eyebrows move. It doesn't matter what she's doing. Like, and I was telling my wife, I'm like, like after watching her in these other things, and then I go back to that, the amount of concentration she must take to keep her 
upper part of her face stone cold through all these things that are happening to her. It's just, it's a testament to her acting skills because it is a definite change in the character because you watch her and, and it's very rare that Khaleesi's eyebrows move at all. And then you watch on these other things and it's like, she expresses so much emotion through it. So, so, I got my wife into Game of Thrones just by that aspect alone. And it was funny because you're like, who's going to, you know, go on and on about her, her acting in Game of Thrones. And for me, it was like the, the lack of facial expression was a testament to how much she was acting just off of what I'd seen from her. And that's what hooked my wife. So my wife, that was her in. Like she, she, you know, she could care less really about anything else. She wanted to see Amelia Clark in Star Wars. So that's, that's the aspect for her that she's enjoying. But I, I think for me, I was one of those, with Donald Glover, like, I, I felt right out the gate that that was a great choice casting-wise. I felt like he really looked like the character and stuff. It was like a whole Spock scenario for me. And for me, I really got a kick out of the way he delivered the dialogue. Like, I I thought that was the most on point of all the characters in there. I thought that was great. Um, there were times with Han's character that I did hear him. Uh, you know, the first time I watched it, I didn't think I heard him. I, I kept waiting for it, but then when I watched it on the second time, I'm like, okay, all right, all right, I'm hearing it, I'm hearing it now. And I think that that's, you know, the thing is that you, you have to be looking for it. Um, you know, not always is it going to be something like with Glover where it kind of just jumps out and slaps you in the face, like, wow, like you guys really did a good job. But, you know, you, you can't help but notice that there was effort put in by everyone. And I think that that definitely helped going forward when you had some of these casting choices that people were kind of like on the fence about. I mean, I was more for the guy uh, from the age of Adeline that played young Harrison Ford. And a lot of people were like, oh, he's just an impressionist. And it's like, well, dude, the guy was hired to be an actor. He's an actor. So to me, I, I thought that would have been the better role. But who's to say that he would have done a better performance? You know, I mean, we, uh, we'll be guessing on that till the end of time because he wasn't picked. But I think that Alden did his very best and I thought he brought everything to that role and there were moments where I did believe it. Um, I think for me though, the one disappointed thing that I had was, and, and, and they got me on a trailer again, was when they had that reference for 190 years old and Chewie looks at him and he goes, Hello, Clark. And he's like, you look, you look excellent or something like that. And I'm just like, when that scene happens, Chewie does a roar instead. I'm like, oh man, what happened to the, I look great sound. Like I, I thought that was a brilliant play in the trailer. And then when they had the clip, they changed it. I'm like, why would you change that? That was so awesome. So like little things like that. Threw That's me like a, a chopper where he's like, wah, 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 you know, and you're like, did he just drop an <laughs> F-bomb? Um, right. I didn't find it interesting, you know, Han speaking. You know, Shrewook, I was like, wait, Hans B. Shrewook? Why the hell doesn't mm -hmm. he do it in any other film? I guess they just get to a well, point where... Well, the fact that a human could talk it at yeah, all. It's, it's just like, okay, we're going there. Um, so of the new characters, I got to say, and it's funny because I couldn't remember where I had first seen Thandie Newton before, who plays Val. Um, I've seen a few things she's been in, you know, re more recently, Westworld. But it was funny because this week was the release, as we're recording this, um, this past Tuesday was the release on 4K of all the Mission Impossible movies. And she plays Naya Nordoff-Hall, uh, the love interest, basically, in Mission Impossible 2. And I was like, oh, that's where I've seen her before. So that kind of threw me at first. But now that I actually can picture where I've seen her before, I'm like, okay, great. Um, I think Val worked well. Um, she worked well as sort of a, an interest and, and a very lightly played interest for, uh, Tobias Beckett. They didn't hit you over the head with it. It made for a nice character moment where, 
You know, she's like, you know, everybody needs someone, even a guy like this or however she says it. I thought that worked well. Um, the fact that she then sacrifices herself was kind of surprising given when it happened, but I guess that explains why she's not anywhere else in the marketing materials and why they didn't make it Sana Staros. Um, she's gonna die. But then I'm sitting back and, and it bothers me then in the portrayal of Tobias Beckett. I think Beckett is played very well. He's believable as the character that he's meant to be. Um, he has some great moments, including uh, the probably one of my favorite moments of the film for any of the characters, um, where you see how much he actually cares about Han. Um, you know, and when they're trying to figure out what to do next, and he's, and, you know, he's not saying, like in the trips, like, oh, you, you come with me, you're in this life for good. And we're like, oh, he's just saying you join the crew, you're going to be a criminal for life or something like that. No, in context, it's, it's no, he knows me, not you. You come with me, show your face. If they don't kill you, you're in this life for good. He's looking out for Han. Um, even whenever he finally dies, their interaction together, fits the mold of this sort of this 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 tragic broken mentor character who manages to wind up still caring even though he's still doing what his instinct tell him to do great great character rio funny but gone too quickly certainly um way too quickly um Dryden Voss, like I said, it's a different type of villain, sort of the criminal mastermind type villain, but who also is very different than, say, a Jabba the Hutt, which was cool. Uh, a criminal mastermind who, it turns out, actually answers to someone else, as they hint at until eventually we get the big twist with Maul appearing in the film, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, later. Um, good character. Kira as a character that can work well with Han. I think that works cool. Her being sort of torn between the two worlds of where she comes from, being with Han. Um, with the white worms and everything on uh, Corellia versus, you know, basically one of her fears coming true, right? Being sold to Crimson Dawn. Now she's with Crimson Dawn. She's branded. She is basically what she wants to or not, a consort of Dryden Voss, etc. And sort of where her story sort of naturally takes her as someone focused on survival and never being controlled by anyone else again. Um, all great stuff, but I would say that the standout character of the new characters... And the one that I think there's some misconception about in terms of the inclusion in the film is L337, right? You know, L3, the one that has to be told to let go of the mean man's face, who, by the way, is Ralakili as opposed to Malakili, the Rancor Keeper. That was on purpose, apparently. Um, but it's interesting because L3, like, it's it's funny because I saw L3 and I enjoyed the way the character was played in the film. I thought it made it a, this a unique character to be so focused on individuality and droid rights. Kind of a droid culture thing almost. You would almost expect her to join the the, the terrorist group. Um, because she is is very singularly focused. Though I guess by then they're not really, I don't know, yeah, I guess they're not really around quite as much. But they are in Most Wanted. Um, but it's interesting though to see her perspective uh, there being sort of a unique character. And yet she seems to be someone that a lot of people who, if there was any character they didn't like, they hated her. And they pointed out that as the rationale for hating her. Um, and it's funny because I see people who say, okay, well, the fact that she is so, and she's like completely myopically focused on the droid rights thing. You know, it's like, oh, why? Because you're my organic overlord. And you know, do you need anything? Equal rights? I mean, just right off the bat. And you can see Lando just like, oh, I walked into that one. Why the hell did I even ask, right? <laughs> the look on his face is just like, oh, I should have seen that coming. Um, like, you knew you knew it was going to come, and he walked right into it. 
And there's sort of this, oh, well, here's another character here. L3 is the embodiment of all the social justice warrior-ness for this film. And you see, you hear that coming from like the, 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 the far right, I guess you could say, of fandom and the people who want to hate because of the diversity thing. Now it's like, oh, well, here she is. It's not a very diverse film, but there you go. The voice of the social justice warrior. I think it's the opposite. I think this is a character who is so over the top in what is essentially a Star Wars version of a social justice warrior constantly unable to talk about anything other than that particular pet issue or primary focus issue, depending on what connotation you want to put to it, um, that I almost think that they had the character in there as satire. I don't think she's in there to represent social justice warriors. I think she's in there to sort of poke fun of them. In a lot of ways... It's kind of like, you know, the casting of the film. You got Beckett, you got Han, you got Lando, you got Kira. Um, those are your four making, and you got Dryden Voss, I guess you could say, as your five main non-alien characters here. And of them, four of them are male, four of them are white, right? This is the antithesis from a, a po- socio-political standpoint, um, of, say, something like The Last Jedi or The Force Awakens or Rogue One in the context of some of the things that fandom has, rightly or wrongly, mostly kind of over the top, been bickering about for years. But I think that's another example of the same thing. I think that we're meant to laugh at L3 and her preoccupation with droid rights because of how over the top her pushing of it is. And I don't think that if it was something that they were trying to say, you know, see, here's a kind of character we're trying to lift up, I don't think they'd play it as a punchline at times. I think that if you're going to play it as a punchline at times, it's got to be that you have the character there and they're over the top in that way for satire or a parody, not for uh, the representation of that perspective. So it'd be interesting to hear from like Lawrence Kasdan and John Kasdan, like when they were creating L3, it, she obviously would have the reson, it would resonate with a part of the audience who's looking for the politics in it and representation of the way that people act today in the modern world in Star Wars. Um, but I wonder, were they meaning that as satire? Were they meaning it as, you know, just playing it, playing it straight, so to speak? Um, which kind of also, I guess, goes a little bit, just, just keep all this in one place so the whole episode doesn't wind up reflecting, you know, just, you know, talking about modern context and stuff. Kind of the same thing with, with, uh, Lando. Right. What was the big controversy about Lando? Right before the film came out, Huffington Post manages, who's pretty far left, manages oh, to corner yeah. land, corner John Kasdan. And John Kasdan says, well, you know what? Uh, Lando's a pansexual. And, you know, it's, it's a teachable moment, I guess. People are going to find out then what does pansexual mean? It has nothing to do with kitchenware. Um, <laughs> pansexual literally just means someone who doesn't restrict, because it, it's not a gender identity thing. Right. Pansexual yeah, is a I sexual orientation it thing. It's basically, I'm not going to limit myself to one gender slash gender identity slash biological sex, however you want to define it. Um, it's kind of like the way that, that society used to look at bisexual as, well, you're just mm-hmm. open to everyone, except now, since it's not seen as, you know, binary gender, apparently, that, 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 yep. that society's view is kind of becoming muddy on that issue, you know, and, and hasn't really settled again yet. Pan, Literally means, you know, everywhere, like, like, like a pandemic is everywhere. Pansexual means all. Mm-hmm. And in a modern context, if you look at like a, a real world definition, it's those things that you're not limited by gender, gender identity, or, um, uh, biological sex. But you would figure in a galaxy far, far away, that probably would also apply to like species and maybe even yep. sentient biological or sentient droid. 
But if you look in the film, really the only moment that has any sense that Lando is, you know, is, is interested in anyone, there's the interplay, I guess, really with L3 and some of the comments that L3 makes that, again, I'm not sure if we're supposed to take them seriously or as a joke, right? Yet Lando loves me. And, and Kira's sitting there like, uh-huh, sure he does, right? Isn't that meant compatible. to be a joke? <laughs> and if it was done as humorous, why would John Kasdan feel the need, except for perhaps, you know, you know, pressure of being kind of cornered in an interview, um, to necessarily say, you know, Lando is pansexual. But at the same time, there's a part of me that says, why are people shocked by this? Right. Lando no. always struck me as the player who'd be like, I, uh, to, to put it in the words of, um, of Jason Mewes J in one of the, uh, uh, the Jersey films, <laughs> I'll blank this blank, I'll blank this blank, I'll blank anything that moves. <laughs> like, like it, stri- it struck me that that Lando was always someone who would have been more like, hey, how you doing? That if he saw someone who caught his eye, he wouldn't care who or in Star Wars what they are. He's interested. You know, and you kind of got that a little bit with Legends. Um, but the idea that, that, you know, that of all the characters that they could have said, you know, this character is pansexual. That's where you're going to get some representation for that particular segment of society. For it to be Lando was, to me, felt like kind of the most no-brainer of the decisions they could have made. Um, and it, and to me, it actually helps a little bit of The Empire Strikes Back. Because right before the whole, you know, fake out, you know, you got a lot of gets coming after what you pulled. And then the hug, which is meant, I guess, I guess the ending of this film is meant to mirror that to some degree. Um I, I, you know, I always felt like he was dehumanizing Leia when he's taught, he sees Leia and says, hello, what have we here? Well, if Lando is really open to anyone and anything, then to some degree, what makes more sense for him to say than who, doesn't it? So in essence, it's not dehumanizing Leia. It's his way of saying, hey, here's something attractive. Let me figure out its traits because I want to bone it. That that seems to fit Lando for me. I don't feel like it's that much of a change to the character, but it was interesting that that's where you got the those two characters, the Lando thing, which really isn't evident as much in the film. And somebody's like, "Well, they're saying that he's gay because there's a point at which they're talking. He's talking to Han, and then uh, their conversation is cut short because L three says done flirting." She's joking for the love of God. She's making a quip. She's a smartass. Um. But, but yeah, I just, I feel like it's interesting that, that that was where the controversy lie in those two characters. And yet to me, they both felt like the way that the, that people are interpreting them for the controversy, it doesn't seem to really fit with the way, with the perspective that I take when I look at the characters. I'm, maybe I'm just out of sync with rage out there, which I guess is a good thing, maybe. <laughs> no. See, when, when I heard that comment and I looked it up, you know, it was, it was like, okay, so bisexual, you, you just open to both male and female and pansexual doesn't recognize male and female. It recognizes everything. And you think about a galaxy out there. You got all these different species, all these different, you know, bodies and all this stuff. And then you think about Daniel Jose Older's book and the, the Twilight character that becomes the love interest for Lando. That comment makes perfect sense to open that door. And yeah, absolutely. This is Lando. And, and I think that statement, I think it was directed for last shot because, you know, Older wrote Lando as a very promiscuous character, especially in his own mind. He is looking at people and like, I'd tap that. I'd hit that. Like he is a very, condescending in his own mind guy i can get whatever i want and yet the reality of his situation doesn't play out the way like he totally thinks of himself as a player and yet lando's not the type to limit himself 
right? I mean, he is open to all. And I think that that's where they were coming from. And it worked for the solo movie. It worked for when they have those comment lines and it works for when, you know, there's the reference. But I, I do with you. I think, she, you know, L3 was playing. But I think that that's where that came from. And, and if any character that you were going to make that comment and it's not going to be just a social justice warrior kind of thing, not that I really care one way or the other about it, but I think that that's the one where you can get that controversy without trying to. You just let the fans roll with it. And that's what we did. You know, we all rolled with it. Like, why are we doing this? Like, come on. But it just, you know, here he is, the guy that said it. He's caught cornered. What a perfect out. I mean, because it does. It's everything about the character. I think that's where it made the most sense. Like, to have said, like, you know, L3 was one of those characters, I think that would have been the stretch. But Lando? absolutely makes sense to have him be that one. I mean, the first thing I got when I was reading, you know, last shot was he's sitting there just like, he's envisioned himself being in bed with this character, that character, this one. It's just like, wow, dang, man, Lando's kind of a slut in his own mind. Like, he's got no, there's no moral gray area here. He's just like, oh, hey, if you're willing, I'm down. Like, wow, Lando, really? Like, I almost lost respect for him at first, but then, you know, fate just happened to be, like, every time he'd about to seal the deal, something happened. He couldn't do it. Just like, then that became a running joke. It's like his blaster. You know, Han's got the DL-44. He just needs to be the DTF something. You know what I mean? Um... (laughs) And, but although I guess you could take this a little bit further, I mean, it's yeah, we, we have to kind of know, you know, OK, well, what does that mean in the galaxy far, far away? Because are we still talking sentient? We should still be talking sentient because we're talking about consenting adults or consenting individuals. Um, because if you if you take it even further and you just kind of say it's it's anyone and anything, regardless of sentience, then it puts a whole new spin on the guy that's like escaping Cloud City with his ice cream maker. <laughs> and it makes me kind of wonder. Whether there was some subtext to that that we missed. It just, okay, like, you know, why are you kicking your ice cream maker? I like ice cream. You mean you like ice cream? No, I just like ice cream. Oh, God, it's cold and it gets everywhere in the best of ways. Oh, God. Well, real quick, before we move from that, I wanted to touch on Dryden because you mentioned him and his near human appearance. What I, I didn't catch it at the time, and, and it might even have been you that pointed it out to me, was the Freemaker connection. Um, I didn't realize that he was supposed to be an alien species. His fingers gave it away. You know, I kept looking at his fingers and I was like, man, his fingers are pointed. Like, what do you do? Sharpen them? And he is the, uh, the, the, same species as uh, I can't think of her name because I've only seen those shows a few times, but the Sith chick that her tattoos moved all over her face and he's that species. That's why when he got angry, his face, the lines would get darker and his eyes would change color. And I realized I'm like, oh, that's a brilliant way to make that character who is in a canon adjacent story right now to to make some some solid credence for why the things that happened to her in the cartoon happened cuz like one of the things that really turned me off about that was the moving tattoos I'm like are we really supposed to take this for serious and yet you watch Dryden and he's having that happen to his face so I was like okay that was a slick nonchalant way to make a connection there for people that are paying attention to those little tiny connections I thought that was kind of brilliant I didn't catch it at first I didn't even catch it when I was watching the movie it was either you or an article somebody pointed that out to me and I was just like that's brilliant man I mean you got the little connections here and there like for instance I found that you know the fact that Han his whole motivation at least for the first part of the film is that he wants to, you know, get away from Corellia, he wants to get money, get a ship, become a pilot, go back to Corellia to get Kira. This whole idea of, you know, I've got to go back home, and everybody's like, why the hell do you want to go 
back to Corellia for, right? Um, you were a scrum rat. You were part of the white worms, et cetera, et cetera. Everything was blue underground that made it really hard to see. Um, oh, sorry. That was just me when I was watching in 3D. Um, but the fact that Han now, I mean, when we look at The Force Awakens, Han in a lot of ways can really see the perspective of Rey, right? Wanting to go back to Jakku. I've been gone too long and so forth. Uh, I think the scene in which he gives her the blaster and they talk about, you know, bringing her on as part of the crew and how, you know, she needs to get back to Jakku. I think that now has a new resonance because now we essentially see that Han could totally understand that type of perspective at this point. He's, he's sort of seen it. Um, but there are other connections that I found very interesting. Aside from just, you know, you get your references to legends, like, uh, uh, there's references to the three different Leno Calrissian adventures books as, as the Calrissian chronicles of these stories that he's telling. Every time he's, we meet him at a bar or meet him at a sabbat table, he's telling a story that has to do with one of the situations he's been in. And it turns out that he's, you know, taking these from his smuggling days and recording them as the Calrissian chronicles. According to the official guide, he thinks he may have a trilogy in him. If the publisher likes the first one. Um, but even smaller things like, um, I do like the fact, for instance, you get, you know, um, and, and I guess it's a new, a new concept and it, it, it bothered me a little bit at first and now I think I'm okay with it. This idea that we always got the sense that Lando was just this awesome gambler, right? Han was the smuggler. Han was the scoundrel. Lando was the smoother guy and he was more of like, I'm just great at cards, baby, right? You know, it's, it's you know, sit down. It's, my ship's going to be called the Lady Luck, baby, right? You got to add the baby onto the end of everything he says. <laughs> um, but here we find that he cheats. Dude cheats. Dude's got a card up his sleeve that he pulls out at opportune moments to win in Sabak, even when, you know, the other players are like, wait a second, there's no way you had that card it had already been played, which is something that, that that's, uh, Han's talking about early on. And this idea of uh, when Han says, you know, hey, you lost her to me fair and square, he really means, hey, dickhead, you cheated me the first <laughs> time, but you lost her to me fair and square because I kept you from cheating. Eat that. <laughs> but that it's handled in a way... That makes sense of the joke in Empire of maybe maybe not you know you got a lot a lot of guests coming here after what you pulled because for all we know you know who knows what he pulled unless he's talking about the gambling or maybe that great moment on a uh, you know after the mission is is falling apart when they're on Savory and he's, and Lando, Lando's like I hate you and Han says I know which is another great reference. Um, but the fact that, you know, we have that, you know, you got a lot of guts coming here after what you pulled. Looks like it's going to be aggressive and turns into a hug. Well, here's Han, who really is pissed off and really is aggressive. And as soon as he sees the, the thing up Lando's sleeve, turns it into a hug so he can steal the card. To have that be sort of nicely mirrored, I thought was, uh, was excellent. And they do that with a lot of sort of these little bits and pieces, trying to find ways to mirror something we've seen to give us a new take on it or a new um, a new perspective on it. The whole thing with loading L3 into the Millennium Falcon and then saying that that is why C-3PO says that the Falcon has the most peculiar dialect. I'm not sure how L3 had a particularly weird dialect, but I guess that would be different perhaps than the language that the computer would use. Um, I mean, a lot of these little things that they worked in worked well, and they still played... They didn't really play straight to Legends, but they played similar enough, or similarly enough. I think that most people wouldn't be bothered by the fact that that they changed things a little bit. Like, you've got the fact that Chewbacca, 
uh, when when Kashyyyk was taken over, Chewbacca managed to escape, and uh, and he's not one of the ones who were taken and shipped away, but his tribe slash family is there a difference? Great line. Um, were sent away. And he's trying to find them now, but he managed to run afoul of a bounty hunter, which I'm assuming is in the mighty Chewbacca in the Forest of Fear. I haven't read it yet, but it's sitting here. Um, that he gets betrayed by a bounty hunter and winds up getting locked up on Mimban, and they don't have the inclination or the resources to send him back off to Kashyyyk in chains, so they just dump him in there inside the pit. So we wind up with a little bit of him being held by Imperials, but not necessarily as a long-term slave. We have Han uh, being... Uh, essentially having that rescue of Chewbacca be part of him leaving the Empire, but not in the same way. We have him becoming a pilot, but not in the same way. He's doing it to escape the White Worms in this case, or Imperial Custody in this case. But they're still keeping sort of the parallels going. Well, and except for Han wasn't a pilot. I thought that was a great twist. No, 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 no. He was, he was training as a pilot. He was at the Imperial Navy, and according to the guide... I think it was the guide. Um, it is actually right before he is shipped off to Mimban that he gets kicked out for his attitude. So he gets like two and a half to almost three years worth of actual pilot training before his attitude and his, nice. his non-conventional nature um, gets him into trouble and gets him booted. So he does get the piloting, you know, the piloting training with the Empire. So that is still basically true. Um but I find that it's in, to the two things that had me kind of sitting back. One had me saying, yes, and the other one had me saying, wait, what? Um, had to do with two other ways it looked like they were trying to connect to other films. One was relating to Chewbacca. Because they say at one point, we're going to throw him to the beast, and the beast hasn't eaten in like three days. And you know what I'm thinking at that moment. Oh, for the love of God, it's another freaking Borgullet or Rathtar. They can't make one of these freaking movies without a dumbass CGI monster sequence. Can we please cut the crap? And I was pleasantly surprised to find that it was instead a very dirty Chewbacca, which was cool. I think dirty Chewbacca is probably a Star Wars sex move, by the way. Uh, and Lando probably knows it. He and L3 may have tried it. Um, but it's interesting, though, that they're able to pull that off. But then in something that they seem to have been building continuity with recently, they seem to have kind of broken their own continuity. Because if you look at, I believe it was the visual guide for Last Jedi, they give an explanation for the dice. They say the reason that Han had those dice and kept them for all these years was that he used them as part of the Sabacc game that won him the Millennium Falcon, and therefore he considered them lucky and he kept them. Well, he's got them here three years before he ever sees the Millennium Falcon, and they're already somehow considered lucky, lucky enough that he passes them off to Kira, and she later passes them back off to him. So in recent memory, they tried to give us some continuity and some background to the dice, and then immediately in the next film released, contradict that. Uh, and I don't think we ever see any dice used in any of the Sabat games that we see in the film, but apparently, like they say in, I guess it was The Last Jedi, God, I think it was, um, talks about how, you know, there is a variant of it that uses dice, and therefore that's where these came in. But no, no, they've just contradicted their own explanation for it. So it seems weird that you got all these instances of really kind of weaving in with continuity and giving echoes of even Legends continuity at times, and yet this relatively new thing that they've only explained recently, all of a sudden they're like, ah, screw it, we don't need that explanation anymore. Um, by and large, I thought the connections were great and usually subtle enough that fans would get it and new moviegoers wouldn't really care. Um, but that was one that stuck out. I was like, wait, huh? 
See, the dice for me, like I, I got a pair of dice. David Sendon sent them to me from his uh, movie premiere. And I was thinking, you know, like were the dice ever just dice or was the chain included in the game? Because I was like, you know, if it's supposed to be the fuzzy dice reference, I get, but they look more functional. So I was kind of like, you know, maybe maybe they were part of the game. But the other thing I was thinking about is what about the Krillian blood stripes? You know, like that was, you know, the big, like he got the pants, he had the red stripe, the yellow stripe. It was all about doing something. And I kind of thought like maybe it had something to do with Chewie or something like that. But they never really touched on that either. Um, and the other one, too, was the fact that like they're really pushing this whole aspect, this this narrative that Lando is one of the best smugglers in the galaxy. And aside from us watching him smuggle a puffer pig in Rebels, like we haven't really seen him do much in that regard. Like I am ready to see him earn that role. Like if they're going to say he's the best, then then I want to see him pull some some real big jobs and get away with it kind of thing. Like I think that would be a brilliant maneuver. And, and in that regard, I think like they underutilized him in Rebels when they had the opportunity there to play with that. Had they probably known that was what they were going to do, they could have easily made a bigger role for him. I mean, they could have had him bringing supplies into the ghost cell and stuff. Had him been like a major supplier or something like that. Like I, I thought that was a a huge dropped opportunity. Um, you know, they did. We talked about how like they, they did the whole pansexual thing another thing they messed with us with that turned out to be true was the whole this is how han gets his name and what i found interesting about this is through it all we can now have an open door to find out that you know hey ray could just as easily be a solo if that's all han had to do to get the name Ray just needs to stand in a line no, somewhere by herself, man. and she could be solo. No, 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 Ray solo <laughs> thing. No, we are not going to put this into it. No, there's not going to be. No, 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 no. Although Hard I out. must say though, I must say though, you, it's funny that they added that because remember there was a point early on where somebody said, you know, this is the film where we'll find out how Han Solo got his name. And everyone's like, holy crap, Han Solo's not his name? And then there's a whole, no, they, yep. no, 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 uh, uh, they, they rolled it back. And what we mean is his reputation. Uh-huh, his reputation. That's what we mean by got his name. No! You literally meant how he got his name! But it's interesting that, you know, we've got, and I, and I think that they do a good job in Most Wanted of kind of, of dealing with this. Because in the film, it's like, wait, you don't have any people. You don't have a surname that you can give? Is it that you don't want to give it or you don't know it? It, it, it almost makes it sound like he doesn't know it, so he's given a new one. What? But then here you are talking about your dad, so obviously you knew a parent, yeah. so why don't you know a surname for yourself? But if you read Most Wanted, there's a point at which he talks about, you know, my dad took me out to see where he was building these ships, and he said, you know, son, I am I build these ships all the time, and I've been doing it for years, but I'm still a nobody. You're meant to fly them or whatever. And after he tells that story to Kira, Kira's like, you know, is that story true? And he's like, I guess you'll never know, right? Where he gives the implication that he's just <laughs> BSing because, he, you know, maybe I don't know anything about my family. So in kind of a Dickensian way, I'm just going to make stuff up and pretend that they were something I could admire to give my life a direction or give my life meaning. Um, but but yeah, that, that was a little like, really? Solo? Is it? Okay, fine whatever um but the i no no ray solo no no god no i would rather her last name turn out to be bands and she's named after the freaking sunglasses than for it to be ray solo well i was sitting there thinking you know when they first introduced her i was like oh she's gotta be solo oh she's gotta be kenobi she gotta be skywalker and i was like okay well now the movie's come out i think they've they pretty much ruled all those out and then i was thinking about it, i was like well i mean if if that's how han got it, i guess that would be a way there's your doorway out 
Speaking of of outs, like you know, you were talking about tentacled monsters and stuff. I mean, we did get one, the Summa Vermonth or whatever it was, in the Maw. And I remember when that happened, I was like, "Is that a Leviathan?" Or holy crap, did they bring a Leviathan into nope. canon? No, nope. it's a Summa Vermonth. But... Although they did bring in, I mean, they brought the Maw in, which is cool, and the idea of it being so dangerous to make the Kessel run. So in that sense, you know, they. They, they, they made it work, but yeah, it, it's interesting that, oh, here's our crazy CGI monster, and oh, wait, the one thing that had people freaking out about the Falcon was the escape pod, and the only freaking reason it's in the movie is to be monster food? Really? Really? Wow, that was asinine. But see, I was worried about the Maw because at first they kept calling it the Akadis Maelstrom or the Maelstrom. And I'm just like, oh, right, but the man. Maelstrom includes the Maw. Yeah. Well, that, I didn't get that at first, but at first I was just like, man, they could have kept the Maw. And you know, then they go in and then they're like, when they get to the center and they're like, there's the Maw. I, I well, well, let me give you two things that, that, that two like, things yes. that stand out to me about this whole Kessel Run thing. One that I love and one that I hate. The one that I hate is how they get out of it, right? Because the whole idea is, Okay, we are being pulled by the the gravity well of the Maw. We don't have enough power to get out. And L3's brain inside the Falcon is coming up with a direction for us to go that'll chart a safe way out, right? So we need to do two things. We need to inject the hyperfuel, the coaxium, and everybody was like, oh my god, Last Jedi, they have fuel in space? That's asinine. Well, congratulations. Now it's a major plot point. Um... But coaxium is supposed to be injected directly, I guess, into the reactor to give them, like, the kick, the nitrous kind of kick, to give them the power that they need to break the gravity well's hold and zoom out this path that L3's brain, essentially, is pinning down for the Falcon. And they have them on a countdown, and we see this line moving as they're being pulled in sort of a circular direction so that eventually that arc will take them in exact line with the direction they need to go. Then they inject it and get the boost right at the right moment where they're in line with the path they gotta take, and then zoom, they take the path. But that's not what happens. Instead, it's, you're in line. This is our one chance to escape. Inject it. And the ship stops working. Oh, wait, now it kicks in. But in the process of now it's not working, the ship has fallen backwards. It has changed its orientation. And then the kick happens. It's no longer in line with what you've been telling us was the only path to safety. (laughs) So how does the ending make any damn sense? I mean, I get the idea that maybe he just brings it. Maybe Han's just a great enough pilot. He brings it back on course or something. But... Having that, you know, that moment of, hey, look, the, huh, the, the, the Millennium Falcon's failing again, huh? Remember that from the other films was a nod that didn't freaking work because it undermined the scene that it was in. I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Han, Han Steer. You know how, like, when you get a, a really nice Corvette and you're doing 60 and you punch it again and the tires break loose for a second? Maybe, Han- maybe. <laughs> um, but the other thing I really like is the fact that Han bragging about the, the, the Kessel Run. And the thing he's so proud of, right, you know, I made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, you know, and then whenever Ray says, you know, 14, he's like, 12, 14, you know, is the fact that he's still full of crap. Because... Chewy, I round down. It's, it's, well, no, it's not even just the round down thing, right? Because, so you've got the fact that, one, they did, you know, pin down, yes, parsecs means distance, because it's basically a shortcut. So he wasn't just an idiot using parsec in terms of time. He really did mean, mean distance. So they cleared that up. But then, yeah, it's the, um, you know, if you round down. So it means it was 12 point something to get it to 12, right? But he's not bragging that he made it in 12. He's bragging he made it in less than 12. 
So even beyond the rounding, he's full of crap. Which I thought was terrific and totally in keeping with this guy who, who brags about himself to the point where, over time, his bragging about himself has to keep getting bigger. It's his version of the fish story, right? The fish was like three <laughs> feet long originally, and now it's like five. Because he just keeps building his own image. And you got to wonder if at some point he's convinced himself that it was actually less than 12 instead of being over 12 that had to be rounded down in the first place just to get to 12 before he then started lying about it being less. I thought that was brilliant as a, as a subtle way of saying, you know what? He's still kind of a scoundrel and a liar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one thing that, that a lot of people picked apart was the train heist part of this movie. And to me, like, I, I, like, I get it. Yeah, there's repulsor lift technology out there. Why isn't it being used? But I think the people are, are being narrow in their focus here. You know, we're talking about a galaxy that spans God only knows how far with how many worlds that have so many different technologies and limitations. You know, like, yeah, there's repulsor technology out there, but what if this planet can't get any ship to them or, you know, the cost to get it over there and stuff like that? I mean, you know, they're, they're doing what's within their means. And so for me, that didn't take me out of it. But I know that there were a lot of people that that really bothered them, that train scene. And I was just like, man, I thought the train scene was brilliant because it gave us the aspect of, you know, Han ditching the cargo. We see Emphant's Nest showing up, which I was like, was Effin's mom, was was that her in that scene? And like she died at some point and then the kid took up. Like I was kind of confused when that happened. Like that part threw me off. I wasn't sure if like when when the helmet came off and we realized it's it's the daughter. Like was that a big revelation? Like were we supposed to know who the mom was or the dad was? Like that part kind of confused me. But overall, like the fact that Han ends up helping their resistance by helping them get what they need. Like I thought that was a really cool moment. I mean – it again puts Han in that renegade yet helping the rebel point. You know, like he's not with them and yet he totally helped them. But it's pretty early though, too. She's talking about, you know, the idea of organizing a resistance. But it's still, you know, five years before Rebel starts. And at the time Rebel starts, you know, there's, there's not really much of an organized way of doing it. There's a little bit, right? Uh, and I guess in essence, since this happens between Ahsoka becoming Fulcrum, and eventually what we see with Rebels, that to some degree, some organizing is happening. It just seemed, you know, it's pretty early to be making that reference. Although I did like the fact that there was that twist that, you know, you expect this just to be a rival gang. And it turns out that, no, in essence, these are kind of the good guys of the story. <laughs> um, that Emphasis one is is a young woman uh, carrying on from her, her, her mother, which also adds in the ties in terms of, you know, the brutality of Crimson Dawn and helps reveal their evil and, and cast them even more as the villain. Um, but to have that twist was pretty interesting and, and it perfectly goes along. Like his choice at the end to basically let them take the coaxium, um, goes perfectly along with what she says. And I think it's one of my, it's my other favorite moment, right? The, uh, I guess there's, there's three favorite moments, but I think that the top two are the, the Beckett moment I mentioned earlier and then the one that happens between, uh, Kira and Han with the third being the whole, you know, I hate you, I know. Um, but the second great moment for me is the conversation in which they're talking about, you know, well, who is he? And he's like, she's like, she's like, okay, outlaw. You can tell yourself that, but I might be the only person in the whole galaxy who knows what you really are. Yeah, what's that? You're the good guy. And she was, you know, I'm not the good guy. I'm definitely not the good guy. I'm a terrible person. And I can't read the you're the good guy line without feeling the welling up of emotion just now as I was reading it. Because it is so perfectly in in keeping with the Han Solo character and the insight she would have into him. 
And seeing that in the trailer, you're like, oh, here we go. What's she going to say? I wonder what it's going to be. But to have it be so perfectly on point and so much sort of a shock to him and to see his fighting against the reality of his own nature, it's a fantastic, fantastic kind of moment. Um, and, and it helps, you know, give us a rationale within the film that, you know what, his choice at the end isn't surprising. His choice at the end is what, in essence, if this is Han Solo that we know, who underneath is better than we think he is, that this is what he would have chosen. I know there are, there are some who are like, yeah, but he's supposed to be this scoundrel. He's supposed to be taking, uh, you know, joining the rebellion to really kind of change him, but not really. I mean, even if you look at A New Hope, right? He's fighting against his own nature, in essence, to walk away with the money at the end, right? You know, he's having to argue with Chewie, and you can see on his face the struggle that's going on. You know, you know, don't look at me like that. I know what I'm doing, right, as he's packing up the money. And sure enough, he's telling Luke, you know, may the force be with you, right? It's a, a line that, at least in that way, Obi-Wan hadn't said. Um, Take care of yourself. It's what you're good at. And, and, and he's sort of being chagrined or here. He's being sort of shamed. But he's... In, in essence, you can see that decision making perfect sense in light of what we see within Solo, and that this, in essence, is the nature of the character. It never really sat well with me, this idea that he just has like a light switch moment, that all of a sudden he's not out for himself anymore. That somewhere deep down, he really had to have been a smuggler with a heart of gold. It wasn't that the heart just appeared. It's that it was under there all along, and he'd been spending years trying to deny its existence or deny the influence of it. And here we see kind of that same thing put into a conversational form. I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant moment. See, and and I think this is where my conflict comes for the character. Like, you know, Han being a good guy and what we get with Han later as a father both makes sense and feels awkward to me because – what we see with Han is a failed father. You know, he, he remembers his dad. He doesn't remember much about his mom. And so he's got no real good example. And so he fails with Ben. And I don't like the fact that he fails because I'm like, you know, deep down Han's a good guy and I don't think Han would, would fail like that. I think Han would find ways to make it work. And so see, for- see, I don't think, I don't think he's failing though. I don't think Han fails as a father. I think Last Shot does a good job of showing that he's trying his best and that he thinks he's not doing well, but in essence, he's doing what needs to be done. He's being there as a father. It's only after he's already gone off with Luke and Snoke is twisting him and stuff that things go awry, and by then, Han doesn't have that kind of influence over him. I don't think... I think Han thinks he failed as a father. I think he thinks he's going to fail as a father. I don't think he actually does fail as a father. No, and I, and that's, that's the part that, that bothers me is, is that it's all in Han's head, right? That, that he's going to fail. And when you go to the Legends one, it's like he embraced being a father. He embraced being the husband. It's just, it's just two different Hans and yet they both come from the same spot. It's really hard for me to, you know, see them as two different individuals, even though it's so glaring when they come from the same kind of root. You know, it's, it's really weird because I loved, the father that we got in Legends so much that seeing Han kind of beat himself up, which I can relate to. And I think, I think you're in a spot where you're about to relate to it. You know, the one thing we don't want to do as fathers is, is screw up our children and that fear. And I think Daniel Jose Older nailed that with Han in his book, which for me really helped me endear this canon version of the character. I needed that. Uh, last shot felt in a lot of ways more like error to the empire than anything else that we've gotten in canon. Like it really felt like it was bringing Han back to that. He's a husband and he is doing, he's going to do right. 
except for he's conflicted because he doesn't know how to do that right. And so for me, it was like, it, it was noticing the differences, you know, cause even in legends, Han was still flawed, you know, he still had his flaws, but I felt like he did a better job fathering his children in legends than he did in canon. But I think that that comes back to the internal fight and the internal struggle and where he ended up being. And, and I want to know more about how Snoke influenced it because I don't think it was all on Han. I think that there was a multitude of things that, that forced that relationship to crumble and fall apart, not just with him and his son, but even with him and his wife. But it does bother me that, that, that happened. Like, cause, and I think this gets back to me being such a fan of the New Jedi Order, because when Chewie dies in the New Jedi Order, Leia fills that role for Chewie. You know, Leia becomes a Jedi. She picks up a lot more of the weight. And the two of them really, for the first time ever, become a functioning set of partners. You know, I mean, they were always life partners, but Chewie was the partner partner. And when Leia kind of filled that out, like for me, that really worked and it really meshed and not having that kind of relationship in canon was, it was really off putting for me, but I love the way that, that older really put us inside Han's head. And I really hope that more authors utilize that aspect of the character, because I think that that's the way for the people that are like me that feel like this hand is just so fundamentally different in so many ways that that's the one way that you can bridge that gap and bring us back around. Cause for me, everything that older put in with the internal struggle for Han, it really resonated with me as a father and, and those feelings of inadequacy, you know, cause very few of us get, the book that tells you, you know, what to expect with expecting. I mean, if you go out there and grab that book, it gives you kind of an idea. But even then, as, as prepared as you can be to be a parent, it goes off the rails immediately. You know, I mean, because it's like when kids get hurt for the first time, everything is the, oh, my God, I'm going to die because they've never felt this pain before. Yeah, it's just a splinter. But for them, it's like this is the worst pain they felt. And you got to talk them off the ledge because, you know, in a minute here in five years, you're going to crash a car. You're going to break a rib. You're going to have something so much worse than that splinter. But, yeah, right now, this is like your most intense moment. And yet you've got to be that parent of like. You got to teach them how to embrace this stuff and understand like, you know, there's worse things coming. You got to move along with this. And to watch Han struggle there was really hard for me, especially with having Legends there and having a different version of him. And I didn't want to be like, you know, oh, it's so much better in Legends because, yeah, Legends has its flaws. You know, there, it, there's some weird things that happen in Legends. I'm, I'm not just a, a complete cheerleader for Legends. But I think that that's the thing is like when you when you bridge these two universes in the way that they're doing, find that middle ground that kind of resonates for the people. And I think, you know, with with older getting into that headspace was something that they really needed to do. And I think when you have these moments of dialogue where Han's talking to people about things and with, you know, Kira, especially, you know, you're the good guy. That's those moments in film that bring that part forward that helps us move along with the character. Because I think for me, like that was the biggest thing was, was embracing this version of Han. And when that moment happened and then later when he does the shoot first, like I felt like they kept true to that renegade feel. And yet he still was a good guy. Like they really meshed both versions of Han in this movie. And I think that for me, that worked in selling Alden all the way around was the way that they wrote it. And I, I mean, Kazan rocked that part for me. I, I really, I got a kick out of that. I still can't wait to see when we get that behind the scenes thing and, you know, how much of the story changed as it went along, how much of it was reshot that, like, I think that there's a, a further aspect of the story that could be told in that regard down the way. Same like when we get to the saga films with Leia passing away with Carrie Fisher passing away and all that, seeing, you know, how the story was going to go and where they had to immediately shift and change direction and stuff. 
that stuff's always intrigued me. But unfortunately, due to the nature of the process of the films and everything, and now that we have more films coming out, they're going to play it tighter to the chest. We're not going to get a lot of this stuff till much later down the road. So I'm, I'm definitely curious to see how that's all going to play out as we go. Yeah, I mean, they, they capture him well. I mean, they managed to give us a character who is, I mean, even to some degree, Han sort of has given this idea that, you know, even when he's a scoundrel, He's got kind of his own code, but it's a little bit more toward good than, say, a Boba Fett or uh, even I think of like a, the lines uh, or the, the the comments made by Shades in the most recent season of Luke Cage. Not spoiling anything, but the line, of, you know, there are rules to this game. You know, you don't violate the rules for Han. It's like there's a, there's a, it's there's rules to the game, but there's also a morality underlying them. I mean, even when he's a soldier, right, they're on Mimban, which, of course, is from Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was awesome. Um He's on Mimban as a mud trooper. And, you know, they're talking about how going after the hostiles. Like, oh, it's their planet. We're the hostiles. I mean, even then, he, you know, <laughs> he has that type of inherent sort of sense of right and wrong um, in relation to the situation. As opposed to, you know, kind of the Lando thing of, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. But I accept it. You know, where it gives us sort of this sense of who they are. Um, I really, really thought it was funny, you know, when, when Han is talking about his past. And he talks about how he says, you know, look, look. Gotta steal to eat, gotta eat to live. I'll tell you all about it when I've got the time. Oh no, wait, that was from Riff Raff Street Rat from Aladdin. My bad. Uh, but, but j- just, just, just like with Ezra, I guess that, uh, uh, you know, Kira don't buy that. Um, so generally speaking, I think that it worked well. Lots of things set up. I mean, we've got, you know, how does he get the Falcon? How does he meet Lando? How does he get the DL-44 where apparently it had sniper attachments that were taken off and then it was given to him by Beckett? Um, why is he having this reaction to future characters and so forth? How does he get his name? There's all these different things they're sort of giving us. Um, with the last, I guess, being the whole thing of, you know, the big shot gangster putting together a crew, which I assume from the trailers must have been them talking about the Dryden Voss mission. Yeah. yeah no, no, they're talking about Jabba. This is just apparently where he, I guess he's going to go meet Jabba. But I think that the, there, I mean, there's a few things that still kind of, kind of sit odd with me with the film. Um, one is the ending. One is, um, something relating to Val and, uh, and Beckett. And then, of course, I want to talk about the mall twist, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to condense down and make sure we get in the stuff that we want to talk about without this going extra long because we're almost at two hours at this point. Lead us away, man. So the thing about the ending then, okay, that got me. So ending Beckett mall twist, we'll call it. Um, the ending thing that got me was it felt very shoehorned. Even if it's, you know, okay, well, you know, they're, they're, they're going to go and meet Jabba based on this thing that Beckett said. That felt kind of natural that Beckett would mention it and Han would be like, look, you know, this is an opportunity for us. But we have the, the, the two things that just irk the crap out of me in that last scene, or at least kick me out of the movie at the very end, which is, have I, whatever it is that Han says, like, have I ever steered you wrong before or something, right? Like, dude, you've known him for, like, less than a week. Have you ever steered him wrong? When have you told him something to do in this time that wasn't an idea of somebody else? Some of them were your ideas, but for the most part, it was like, have I ever steered you wrong? Well, I guess you've never been in charge of the car. <laughs> so I'm not sure if you've ever had much of an opportunity to steer me wrong. So it seemed like kind of a, he was assuming a a past that didn't exist yet, in essence, in saying that. And then the fact that it's like, jump to hyperspace, woohoo! That should have been the ending. The fact that it's then like, now we're going to do a quick cut and show the dice before we iris out. That shot of the dice pisses me off. (laughs) Because it doesn't feel organic to it. It feels 
Like, they took an ending that could have been, obviously, they go to hyperspace and they iris out. That's a Star Wars ending. No, here's the friggin' dice again. No, you didn't need that last shot. It made the ending feel just as jarring as the barrel with the Rogue One title did with Rogue One. I'm sure I'll get used to it after a while. I thought it was just to say that he got off, you know, that the, that the luck was was lasting. Maybe, kind of but that, to me, that was it. It was like, what are these for? For luck? I mean, show it right before they jump to hyperspace then or something. Don't make that the last shot you iris out on. That's just weird. Um, and the other thing that got me was Beckett. I really enjoy the portrayal of Beckett pretty much throughout the film, except for one thing that drives me nuts about the character. And me and Michael argued about this. They take the time to let us know that it's not just that Val and Rio are Beckett's crew. It's that Rio's a crew member, yes, but that Val is his love interest. Um, they even go so far as he's from Gleansom, according to the guide. He wants to go back to Gleansom and retire and learn to play the Val Accord. And they play that up repeatedly. Her name is Val. It's the Val Accord. When they're interacting and when we hear, and when Beckett eventually dies, we hear string-based music. They're playing this up and then you got the scene where she's like, you know, even a scoundrel like this or whatever and winds up kissing him. And you've got that romantic connection. And they do a good job of sort of echoing that throughout other parts in relation to his character. And then she dies. And he gives a crap for like 20 seconds. And then it's like it doesn't affect him for the entire rest of the film. Unless his reason for not wanting to put Han and Chewie in harm's way when he goes to Dryden Voss, thinking he's going alone... Unless that is specifically informed by the fact that he just lost his two crew members, his two friends, one of whom was more than a friend. Unless that is what informs that, and we just assume that he is burying and pushing that down for the rest of the film, the emotional impact of Val and Rio's death is barely existent for the characters in the film. And it just doesn't feel natural for the Beckett character. I mean, it'd be like if we got Vector Prime and Chewie dies and Han's like... Damn, <laughs> that was a big explosion, wasn't it? <laughs> no! You got us off the planet in time, Anakin. <laughs> He's a wreck after that. And here I would expect to see kind of the same thing. But no, I mean, the, I mean, what's his reaction? He punches Han in the face. And he doesn't even say, you know, you know, you, you, you don't listen. You don't follow orders. Punch or whatever. Um, at no point is it you just got people killed. People are dead because of you. No, it's don't disobey me, boy. Yeah. I don't think that's what it's meant to be. I think it's meant to be that he has the impact on it, but we don't see on screen enough of his emotional response to the death of Val to feel true to the character and true to what they set up like 10 minutes before. Well, like Rio, Rio dies as part of, you know, the mission itself, right? Val sacrifices herself. So I was in that same boat of, of he should have been a little more angry with them about it. It's like, you know, these people sacrificed their lives so we could get this. And then you dropped it like, dude, like, yeah, that, that I think for me, that was probably the only part that really kind of was like, why didn't you get a little more mad on that? See, I, I feel you on that. What's our other one, man? What was those two? It was those two. Those two things about the ending. Oh, okay. Um, and I did want to get into the mall twist. Um, I think we could go into what it actually is that Kira says that uh, Han ha or that Lando has that is prodigious, but I don't want to know. So I think we'll hold that for, I mean, Star Wars Beyond the Films After Dark or something. Um, but the mall twist I thought was interesting because they're hinting repeatedly throughout the film that there is somebody above Dryden Voss. And especially when you see it a second time, knowing what the twist is that's coming, it's kind of like a fight clubby type feel where you kind of hear those notice, you see those hints dropped 
much more often, even though she does at one point flat out say it, you know, uh, you know, even Dryden Voss answers to someone to have it turn out to be Maul. That was like the only thing. There were two moments in the entire film that got a reaction from the people seeing the film when I went to see it. And to, and again, going back to this idea of, of it just wasn't marketed well and just did not do as well. People didn't get, get, you know, kind of driven to go see it. When we went to see it, there was maybe 20 people in that theater, probably less. And we were two of them. And it was opening night. It was a preview night. It was like the night before. It was the, the Thursday night at where only the diehards would show up and barely anybody was in there. And there were only two moments of reaction. One was when, you know, Beckett is kind of monologuing again and Han just shoots him, which is sort of the blaster way of STFU, right? Just right. Um, and somebody in the crowd goes, Han shot first. And everybody laughed. Um, but when Maul shows up was the only time where the other people, like, like most of the people actually in there, oddly enough, and these are pre-purchased seats where you choose where to sit when you buy the tickets online or at the door. Most everybody was in the same row we were. (laughs) And the people on the other end of the row were like, what the They were freaking out. And I know we, I've talked to people who didn't follow Rebels and didn't follow Clone Wars who were like, wait, so this is before Phantom Menace? Because Maul's alive? What? Huh? Because they have no idea that Maul came back in Clone Wars and then came back in Rebels. See, but I watched Rebels and even I had to contact you because I was like, but he's dead. Like, I forgot that this takes place before Rebels. Right. So so we've got an instance here where basically his story, for those who aren't as familiar with it, right, he gets cut in half on Naboo. He winds up on Lotho Minor, presumably with the junk. We got an explanation for that in Legends that didn't carry over into canon. So we don't actually know how he wound up there. In Legends, it was like it w- he was taken there with the garbage as things like were flushed out of that reactor system or whatever. Um, but he winds up there. He uses the dark side to keep himself alive. He essentially builds the spider mall body, so to speak. He winds up being found by Savage Opress, um, brought to Mother Talzin, who turns out to actually be his real mother, um, Mother Towson winds up basically um, uh, reshaping him to a degree and giving him the weird, you know, robotic legs, the weird droid type legs, um, which eventually get uh, when he's in the process of trying to build up a criminal syndicate, uh, the Shadow Collective, to go up against other powers like Darth Sidious. Um, that he winds up making contact with Death Watch and Pre Vizsla, I mean, eventually usurping him and taking over Death Watch, but winds up getting new legs from them um, that make him look more human or more humanoid, at least. Uh, he winds up fighting alongside the Death Watch, then leading the Death Watch and the Pike Syndicate and Black Sun until they finally get sort of brought down at the end of the events uh, we see in the Clone Wars cartoon where Savage Opress gets taken out by Sidious, and then Sidious captures Maul. And for those who saw the Clone Wars, that would be it. But then we have the Son of Dathomir series, where he is broken out of the Spire prison, has sort of a last hurrah of leading his people, at least the ones that are still loyal to him. Uh, The Pikes are kind of like, screw it, we're out. Uh, Up against uh, our heroes, only to wind up losing again, and sort of presumably fading into obscurity, which is what would have happened to him in Legends, because we never get the other stories later, because they're not in the Legends continuity, only to eventually see him uh, in Rebels on Malachor, having been searching there for whatever, um, and eventually seeing sort of him rise back into power that way, or rise back into um, his goal of gaining power, finding Obi-Wan, and, and taking revenge, and that sort of thing. So we are in the gap between Last Hurrah of the Shadow Collective and him sort of still out there somewhere. And... 
Or I, and I guess I guess there is another middle step. After that, we do wind up seeing him in the Ahsoka novel, where we know that actually, because that was during the Clone Wars, that we know that when Order 66 happens, he has just tried to make a power play on uh, with Death Watch on Mandalore to take control again, winds up fighting against Ahsoka, winds up getting captured by Ahsoka and Rex and others who were left there by Anakin when they had to go off and save the Chancellor. Um, but in the midst of Order 66, he manages to escape. Okay, so this is between his escape during Order 66, which is after that last hurrah, so the Shadow Collective is no more, and when we see him in Rebels. So in essence, we have here basically... Uh, what amounts to sort of a nine-year gap between the last time we saw him in the Ahsoka novel and this, in which it seems as though, you know, in the five years prior, five years or more prior to Rebels, that here's a character who is sort of going back to the same plan of a criminal syndicate being a means of power. So to me, it made perfect sense that Maul, if he was out there somewhere and still wanted to be a player, would have done kind of this thing to have Crimson Dawn or have some type of syndicate sort of under his control. I thought it was a cool twist, an interesting twist. I hope that we then get more to let us know how we get Maul from there to where we see him later. Did he need to activate the lightsaber? No, probably not. But it helped remind people of who he was. Sure. Um, did And it's the Rebels version of it. Um, and was it weird seeing Ray Park doing his, his doing the physical appearance again? Yeah, kind of. But the fact that it was Sam Witwer doing the voice was friggin' awesome and made it kind of funny that right before, like right as Solo was about to come out, I already knew that Maul was in it thanks to Michael having an early screening of it and somebody asking, you know, Sam Witwer, so you've seen Solo. What do you think of it? And he gave it a, a good review. Well, of course he's in it, right? But he couldn't tell anybody that. <laughs> um, I thought the twist was cool. I thought the twist has some interesting promise, but I know that for a lot of people it was very jarring. And for those who didn't follow Rebels and Clone Wars, it was confusing so I'm wondering, did they make the right choice by making it Maul instead of, say, Jabba or some other new character? I say yes because, to me, that moment, for the people that did not know, this is like in Legends when you get to Dark Empire and Luke falls to the dark side. It happened in the comics. It's referenced again in the books, but it's never more than a reference in the books. You're like, when did this happen? Where was this story? And you could only get it in the comic. You had to find the comic. And back in the day when we first started getting into it, they didn't have reprints. You had to find, you know, you had to hunt those copies down. Uh, in fact, when I got my Empire's End number two, I had to get on eBay. I paid like 15 bucks for it. Uh, because at that time, they, they weren't going back to reprint those. So for me, I say yes, because if you're one of those fans that are confused, you now have an excuse to go back and check out this stuff that you have dismissed. And honestly, I, I was just saying this on the Star Wars report. The TV shows are right now, in, in my mind, doing better at keeping my fandom alive than the movies. Uh, I mean, I am thoroughly impressed with the Clone Wars. I'm thoroughly impressed with Rebels. I cannot wait for Resistance because it just there's been more excited fist bump moments than disappointed. Why would they do that? Um, so I, I say yes. But when I was thinking about the the Crimson Sun or the Crimson Dawn connection here. I was almost wondering if 
he was being smart back when he started the Shadow Collective and took over Death Watch. Maybe he was taking over as many things as he could at the time. Maybe Crimson Sun was he found it out even back then, but he threw people off on the sense. So when the Shadow Collective went down, he just shifted his operation into, you know, Crimson Dawn and the Mandalorian stuff. And then when the Mandalorian thing happened during the uh, Ahsoka book, then he stopped doing that and let that one die off and put all his eggs in the other basket kind of thing. Or was it something where, you know, the first two collapsed and then and later he built the third one. That story is interesting to me. Well, it's interesting because you don't get the background of exactly how it happened, but you get the sense that obviously there are some that know that Maul is in charge because there's a point at which I think it was Dryden turns to Beckett and says, you know, you know who I serve or who you know who I answer to. Not in some vague sense, but he got the sense that Beckett knew that it was Maul specifically. Um, which was an interesting you know, twist to that. Plus, but what's also interesting about the Maul thing is that it seems like even his enemies might still know who he is because they're concerned that Crimson Dawn, right? Dryden talks about this when they're first talking about going to Kessel. Crimson Dawn can't run afoul of the Pikes because there's some history between the Pikes and Crimson Dawn, which is why it's good that this crew that's going has no ties and no one would know they're from Crimson Dawn. Well, why do the Pikes have an issue with Crimson Dawn? Presumably because of the issues the Pikes had when they said screw it and left from the Shadow Collective back when Maul ran it. So you've got that, and it's a Pike that we meet, the, the, the Quay Tulsis or Quay Tulsite or whatever his name is, the guy that's running things on Kessel that she winds up using Terrascasi and, and whooping his butt, which was a great reference. Um, He's a pike. So you've actually got that connection between the criminal history of Maul playing into what Crimson Dawn is doing, even before we know that it is Maul. Um, it's well handled, but I know that it was something that kind of, you know, made people wear. But I guess it's, again, sort of different strokes for different folks. And in this case, um, it's lightsaber strokes because it's Maul, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think that it, I think that it worked. So you said there were some other things you wanted to hit. That's pretty much all I personally wanted to get into because I know we're hitting about the two hour mark here. Um, and if people want to see, you know, kind of my immediate reactions, I've got the non-spoiler and the spoiler blogs up on YouTube. And then I argued about it with Michael on Cloud City Casino recently. So, you know, have fun with that. Um, what else do we want to get into, if anything, before we wrap up here? Uh, that's about it. I mean, I, I love the fact that uh, Emphy's Nest had two tubes in it, and then we found out that everybody there was survivors from everything that the Crimson Sun had been doing and the Empire had been doing. Thought that was a really cool twist. Uh, you know, you get to Dryden's office, all the little connections there, the Sith holocron, the references to the, uh, the Han Solo books with the skull and stuff. I, I mean, all those little things. I can't wait to find out more. I, I do think in this new era of canon books – it's almost worth it for everybody to purchase one of those uh, complete guides or whatever they have uh, because that's where you're getting all these little details and stuff because there was some connections to Exar Kun uh, in that group that I thought was interesting because I, I didn't pick up on that. And even with The Last Jedi, they had some references in Luke's uh, kingdom, kingdom, his uh, conclave there, his little hut where it threw back to Revan's group of people and stuff, the, the Jedi Crusaders and stuff like that. I, I just, to me, it's those little things that are brilliant little touches for fans that have been, you know, following the saga in its many forms for so long. You know, you see different aspects of legends making that jump over, you know, I mean, 
I'll always be a fan of that. Like, you know, there's some people out there that hate things coming over in name. You know, we had Jason Sandula. I'm ready for Jaina to make the jump. Give me Karan, Gann, or a couple other people. Like, to me, that's, that's some of the cool aspects, too. So, you know, you could toss their names in just as a, as a guy in the background. I'd be happy. Give me a stupid CGI monster that everyone hates and name it Waru. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Uh, I'd be down, man. I'd be down. <laughs> so, a good film, a fun ride, hard to place within rankings, performances in a film that surprised, predictable, very safe, but also very enjoyable, I think is kind of what we're getting at. And uh, with plenty of elements to discuss, even for such a safe film. Yeah, to me, it's worth watching. I, I mean, to me, if you call yourself a Star Wars fan, if you have an interest in Star Wars, this movie will be a fun ride for you. I don't think this movie will let you down. Um, I think if it's letting you down, I think you're bringing a lot more to the table than you're willing to admit to yourself, honestly. I, I don't see this movie being bad or that bad. I So maybe I'm fundamentally in a disagreement with some people out there. Hey, that's fine. You know, we can have different opinions. Shoot me why. Shoot me why I'm wrong. I, I mean, that's that's fine. We can uh, come back and touch on this some more. I know we have more feedback uh, when it comes to this as well as uh, our last two episodes. So, you know, maybe we'll have another feedback episode real soon. We'll see. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. In fact, if you leave us one in the next week or two, we'll read it on the show. Uh, you can also find links to our show on uh, Twitter and Facebook, or just type in SW Beyond the Films. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's literally the best way to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. We have a Beyonders Who Ponder group. You can join that. So if you have any Star Wars or Legends questions, or if you want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFamilies.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe, the expanded universe. You can watch Harry Potter, any of those type of books. You can get them all without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't put us the odds. That Lando's gonna wind up hooking up with the Falcon? I don't know. I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing this time. Uh, I was gonna say, what are the odds that this will end up being a trilogy of loosely connected Star Wars stories? Like, I honestly, I think I'd be down for that. Works for me! I guess. Well, what are the odds of that? <laughs>